So our last episode, or maybe the episode before that, was named Technical Difficulties. Yeah. Um, this one's take two of Technical Technical, Difficulties. Technical Difficulties 2, the the Technical Difficulty Ning. Yes. (laughs) Electric Uh, Boogaloo. This is take two of trying to record tonight. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) I might have a fair bit of editing in front of me. We'll just roll with it. What are you drinking, man? Well, I, I have already poured my uh, my gin and ginger ale, which is just about the the end of my gin, because the uh, the liquor store, as previously mentioned, is uh, somewhat busy on a long weekend in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, enter long political rant about how you know long weekends and civic holidays don't make any sense. Federal and provincial regulations are all different. Anyway, it's a nice. I'll summer. cobble together a short out of that. Yeah, there you go. Speaking of summer, Mots Clamato. Pickled bean, uh, my first time having it, and it's quite tasty. I I can't understand the idea of taking tomato juice, which is already disgusting, and then adding fish to it. Like, I'm going to squeeze a clam. I'm not quite sure it's exactly like that, but it is funny. <laughs> and it's a great mental image. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine this, at the Caesar factory, they're just like a whole lineup, and they're just milking clams. <laughs> Uh, oh, there's an idea for a product. Clam milk. <laughs> mm, well, they turn everything else into a milk. Why not? Might as well. Might as well. No, it's funny, you know. Um, pickles are a funny thing for me. I like pickles, but I don't like pickles on a lot of things. Really? Yeah, like a burger, for instance. A pickle is something for me that, like, it it flavor is strong enough that it overshadows whatever it is I'm trying to enjoy. It's like the the steak sauce on a steak argument. Like, if you're putting steak sauce on a steak, in my mind, I'm doing it wrong. It's got to be a cheap steak. Yeah, like if, you know, if you're going to put steak sauce on it, like I could just cook up the sole of my shoe, and it's Uh basically going to be the same. But in a drink? That's weird, because I actually don't, I'm not really fond of pickles by themselves, but I I don't mind them with things and to clarify it's more like pickle juice than pickle pickle juice is really good on french fries so here you go summer yeah it is kind of i don't know it went down to two degrees celsius here the other day (laughs) hey it's above zero that's that's summer Uh, i mean yeah it goes up this is this is a funny thing this is actually one of the reasons that i moved here is that overnight it goes down to sort of single digits, right? Like nice and cool, good sleeping weather. But during the day, it gets up to like 25 or 30 and nice and sunny and hot. But you don't get that sort of overnight baking, which is nice. I like that. So you mentioned something uh, just in Discord to me about talking about Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which means I assume that you've seen it now that it has a digital release. Yes, we watched it on uh, Disney Plus last night. What did you think of uh, it? I thought it was pretty good. I, I, I mean, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who have complaints about it because it wasn't a perfect movie. Like there were some bits of it that were a little bit janky, right? Where, you, you know, uh, with, I don't want to get into spoilers at all, but there's a few points where uh, where Quill is is trying to, you know, reconnect with Gamora mm-hmm. that end up. I mean, you need to interrupt them because there's these maudlin moments in the middle of the film and you interrupt it with a joke, but it feels really awkward, which I think is the point, 
right? Because mm-hmm. it's like it's uncomfortable and then it's funny, but it felt felt really odd. But there were lots of like most of it. It was like, like I get it. Like you're pulling all the right emotional levers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing in it that I went, this doesn't fit in a Guardians movie. There was nothing in it that I didn't think was comic book appropriate. Um, I liked it. It was a little bit more grown up than the other two, mm-hmm. right? Because the first one was juvenile. And then the second one was kind of like, okay, it, it was a little more serious. And then this one was it, like, it really felt like a grown up version of the first one. Mm-hmm. A little, a little more sad stuff in it. Oh, it was like gut punch the movie, but at the yeah. same time, it wasn't like the way they resolved everything. Uh, now I'm, I haven't watched it since it was in theaters. So my, my recollection is a little bit fuzzy, but uh, we're going to have a couple of spoilery parts of the show today so um maybe i'll include some timestamps or something if you don't want to get mild spoilers for for guardians of the galaxy 3 spoiler alert yeah skip skip ahead to the end of this episode and then like and subscribe or whatever (laughs) (laughs) hit that smash that bell no i'm I'm not going to get into major major plot points but i'm gonna spoil oh hey our food's here my dog's going nuts can't hear it, so we're good. <laughs> All right. Uh, we had a nap today, and uh, I woke up from the nap, and it was like after seven o'clock. Now I never nap, but it's glorious, up, isn't it? I was I was up to like, oh, my body sucks because like I usually get up at without an alarm. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm the kind of person that just sit up in bed. I look at the alarm clock or my my phone, and it's like, oh, my alarm's going to go off in exactly one minute. Shut it off. And it doesn't matter what time I go to bed. Uh, last night, for some reason, I just had a hard time getting to sleep. I know this is the spoiler section for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. <laughs> uh, last night, uh, last night, I had a hard time getting to sleep. And it was like, I saw 3 o'clock roll around. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, whatever. I'll try and sleep in. And then my body just naturally gets up at 6.30 or 7. Like, and sure enough, I was looking at the clock at 7 and I'm like, fuck me. Like today's, you know, the middle of a long weekend. Yep. Like I can sleep in today. I could not. So for the first time in forever, I had a nap and got up and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm recording in like an hour. I should maybe get up, make yep. myself somewhat presentable. So <laughs> didn't prepare too much. Getting back to Guardians. um, you talked about the 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 Gamora thing, mm-hmm. and while I think that agree, I feel it was intentionally awkward at times. They handled it so well. Like the mistake would have been to have them get together. Yes, I agree. I, yeah, there, the the sort of the the resolution of that thing was pleasantly hurtful or yeah. painfully pleasant i'm not sure how it is but it was like that mix of do you remember in uh, uh there was a movie that disney came i think it was disney pixar came out with uh with the emotions you know the, oh core memory yeah, yeah. Right? I, I didn't then, actually watch it but I, I know the movie yeah and then there's like there's uh, the youthful memories are all like you know single emotions and then there's one that comes with both happy and sad right and that's really what that was is like this core memory where there's like a happy bit and a sad bit and they go blunk. And that's exactly how that felt. Yeah. I think it's a good message about relationships in general, too. Like, it bypasses the whole, these two people are destined to be together. 
And, you know, if the magic happened once, the magic will naturally happen again when circumstances matter. History matters, you know. Yeah, it'd be dumb, but imagine, you know, falling in love with somebody that develops amnesia. 50 first dates? Yeah. You know, maybe it's a one-time amnesia thing where, you know, like, they have some sort of traumatic brain injury or something, and they don't remember who you are when you wake up. You know, the way that would be handled in most movies is that they're already together. One person finds it extremely awkward, but they they learn to love each other again. And, that's and that not, could happen. That could happen. But I think to remind us all that it, it isn't destined to happen. You know, yeah. that, that this Gamora version found herself in a completely different way than the other one did. She found her family and it wasn't you. And that's fine. Like, I thought that was great. You know, yeah, it is a bit of a kind of a gut punch in the way that that painful. whole movie was filled with gut punches. I mean, the other the other sort of side of that is I think everybody expected that somebody was going to die and they spent the whole movie making you think, well, somebody's probably going to die here. And at the yep. end, they didn't. Yeah. And that was Spoilers. great, too. The whole, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the the emotional underpinnings were there. Yep. But. Yeah. I, I really, it's, yeah, it's, you speak about relationships and I think it, it really makes uh, a good point about uh, like a grown up relationship. Cause you look at the relationships that Peter Quill had in the first movie and they were all juvenile, like mm-hmm. childish relationships with, with absolutely no depth to them. And then in the second movie, like he's together with Gamora and it's, he's still not very grown up about it. Right. But he's at least trying Right. He's mm-hmm. trying to grow up. And then in this one, he, they show. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's got some some childish, you know, I want to hang on. I want you back. I want you back kind of stuff. But at the same time, like the way it ends is is very it's like it's a very grown up kind of relationship where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, like everybody acknowledges their feelings, but also recognizes that the reality is they're they're not the same people that they were. Like, neither one of them is the same person as when they fell in love the first time. And I think that that theme, that sort of brush can be used to paint most of what happens in that movie. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, the Gamora thing with Peter, whether it's, like, the team as a whole, mm-hmm. you know, the the fact that, like, that evolution of the team, again, spoilers, mm-hmm. that, that, that incarnation of the Guardians of the Galaxy does, doesn't exist at the end of the movie. Not because, oh, people died or because yeah. whatever. It's just like, you know what? You guys are my family, but we all have other things that we need to kind of focus on now. This isn't necessarily the end, the end, but this is the end for now. Yeah, this is the end of this chapter. Yeah. Um, and now they all go off and do solo projects. I, <clears throat> one of the things Cindy and I talked about at the end of the movie was... uh how like this one was very much the and it's funny because we're talking about it now and i'm like hey this is the arc where peter grows up uh at the same time like at the end of the movie i was like oh this is a really nice character arc for rocket yeah it was it was rocket the movie yeah and, and that was great you know the, the the fact that um you know not i know not everybody's down with the trash pandas right <laughs> i have not the ones living in them. my garage nope uh, I have a soft spot for them, but you know, the fact that they still have the ability to make you feel yeah. that way about what is essentially a few computer generated animals on screen. Like that's impressive, you know, regardless yeah. of how you normally feel about animals. Like I say, I have a soft spot, um, but 
that, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I teared up watching the movie in the middle of the theater several times. Like, it's it was a gut punch. Yeah, it was an emotional movie for sure. And um, I have to say, I you know, I have it had warts. There's some things about the movie that kind of didn't resonate with me. But in the context of almost everything else that Marvel has put out in the last year and a half or so, like, it was a breath of fresh air. You know, well, it's just... Trash, 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 and then like this flawed gem, where it's just like, oh, that is ah. beautiful. I disagree with trash, but I do disagree. Or I do agree that it is. This movie was good, mm-hmm. um, not and great. I, and I think good. I've probably watched a lot of the 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 around the edges Marvel stuff that you haven't. Mm. Uh, a lot of the the streaming shows because there hasn't been a lot of Marvel movies, but you know, pretty much everything from Black Widow forward on the movie front. Uh, the the third Ant Man movie was just just terrible i you liked know, it there was oh hey they're never bad so when i say trash i mean i'm not i'm not saying mm. garbage they're always worth your time to watch them they're always reasonably entertaining for their own merits but a lot of those marvel movies set a couple of bars one here's a great movie and this bar is incredibly high but more importantly i think this is the bar for mediocre and mm-hmm. it is still very, very high. And I actually, funny enough, mentioning Ant-Man, like Ant-Man, the first movie was that bar for me because I think I enjoyed it more than most people did. I you really know? liked it, yeah. So it became my benchmark for pretty much everything afterwards was like, well, was it as good as Ant-Man? Because if it's as good as Ant-Man, then like it's a really damn good movie. You mm-hmm. know, again, it doesn't have to be Captain America Civil War. It doesn't have to be the first Iron Man movie. But if it's up here, like... That's a damn good movie. And now I have to look at that first Ant-Man movie as, oh, actually, in the grand scheme of things, you know, that wasn't one of the mediocre Marvel movies. That was that was probably in the, the 90th percentile. And I don't know. I mean, I didn't like Wakanda forever a lot. There were a lot of things about it that I did like. Um, mm-hmm. I've been enjoying Secret Invasion, although I haven't seen all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, See, I, I found that was a huge letdown for me. There's stuff about it I liked, but I've seen the whole show, so I won't get into spoiler territory with you. But on the whole, I think most of the the what I didn't like about it was the obvious like production issues, reshoots. Yeah. Uh, speculation is that like that featured a whole kind of like before it actually happened in real life, Russian invasion of Ukraine and this whole big sort oh. of U.S. Russia kind of kind of thing going on that they they just well no i don't collusion like i I think there was like supposed to be outright conflict Mm. uh between the nations that you know was a little more overt than maybe what's really happened in the world i don't know 100 percent for sure i'm not an insider but this is a speculation i've heard like they did four months of reshoots oh that's a lot so much about that movie like in terms of production quality uh this isn't a, a a parting gift but if you check out the screen crush channel ryan airy does breakdowns of you know all the marvel stuff all the the, the nerdy shit he's, he's quite good and the one thing he calls attention to is just the production value of a lot of what made it into that show um and we're beyond a lot of the covid restrictions and stuff but like the things like the hospital scenes right where like he, he compares it to seeing a, a like a procedural hospital show like er or Grey's uh-huh. anatomy or whatever and this is marvel you got disney budget behind it and like, you know, you, you see the president being wheeled in 
to a hospital that has like nobody in the just these flat, evenly lit hallways. It's not 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 cinematic in the slightest. And then, you know, later you see the president stand like he's laying in bed in a room by himself and there's no Secret Service agents. There's no there's nothing in there. It's just like huh. so cheap looking. And I think part of that was circumstances led to them having to do a bunch of reshoots. I think the story ended up quite different from what it was initially intended. Uh, But it was just so not up to the standard that I had in my mind. I was really, really looking forward to that show. And I came away with it with a a bad taste in my mouth, like pickles on burgers. (laughs) Call back. We we need a a little, little... Um, soundboard thing for a callback. Yeah. Um, to go back to uh, to Guardians of the Galaxy, though, I mean, I, I don't know the the guy's name, but whoever played the High Evolutionary, I mean, he spent what was the movie two and a half hours chewing the scenery the whole time. Yeah, and I'm on the fence about that. He didn't really resonate with me, but I'm so glad that they didn't just try and well, let's one up Thanos. Let's you know, yeah. let's use this as oh, we need a bigger, badder guy that you know completely empty of any sort of tangible thing that I can relate to as an audience. He was chewing the scenery. He came across as that spoiled brat kind of bad guy to me, which didn't, didn't hook me. I get why they would have done it. I can appreciate all the decisions that went behind their writing for that character. It is one of the parts of the movie that fell just a little bit flat for me. Yeah. And I can, I can absolutely see that happening for me. It was, it was very much like, okay, like you can tell that this guy has just been like his the direction he's been given is okay. How much can you do? Like how how ridiculous can you get? I mm-hmm. want more, and yeah. and he delivered. I was just like completely yeah, and that's, over that's the top. That's not a shot, not not a shot in the slightest at the actor. Like I think, given the direction and 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 writing and and whatnot, like the, you know that character as it was likely on paper, he did an amazing job. But I just thought. On paper, it, it's just a different direction that I would have gone, but that's okay. No. The movie wasn't yeah. necessarily just for me. So <laughs> I think, well, you know, as a, as a counterbalance to the, the rocket stuff, it both worked and didn't work because, uh, you know, at, at one point, like I wanted to, to, you know, oh, this guy's an absolute monster, Yep. you know, and I felt that a little bit, but then, you know, the, 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 the contrasting scenes were, oh, he's a spoiled child. Yeah. Really, to me, it almost like took some of the weight away from the the points where I was trying to feel like he was a monster, and the the and maybe that was calculated. I don't know, but I, I, I would have thought as much as the the rocket stuff and the stuff with the other animal friends affected me. Every time I saw, you know, him throwing a ten- temper tantrum on screen about evolution, it just mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay. He's still a monster, but he's he's a whiny little the petulant baby child. Yeah, and that's. I fine. mean, that's that's the thing, though, is that someone with that childish kind of behavior with that amount of power is very very scary. I don't want to draw any parallels to anything that exists in real life, um, but it's it's a frightening combination. And I think part of it, and this is again, is no fault of the movie, is I I see a little bit of that stuff in the Kang writing as well yeah yeah and it's like oh that's what we're getting like you know they they did a good job of keeping thanos an enigma until they yeah. gave essentially thanos his own movie 
And then it was like, this is, this is how you, you do a bad guy. It's, it's this, it's the old adage of, uh, like, if you want to make a horror movie, don't show your monster in, in the first act. You just don't, you see hints, you see shadows, you, you hear rumors, you, you get hints, you know, but if you put your monster front and center. And it's unfair to compare, you know, a a bad guy from a standalone movie to Thanos. They spent. 17 years working up to Thanos kind of thing, or however many years it really was. Close to 17. (laughs) I was exaggerating for effect, but looking back on it, it wasn't that big of an exaggeration. So it is unfair to compare, you know, the the villain from Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Now, I can compare the villain to to, to Ant-Man to that, because, like, this is the guy that you're supposed to be turning into this big thing. You know, uh, I will say I'm excited by the trailers for Loki season two. I haven't seen any of those yet. You didn't watch the first season of Loki? Mm. I did watch the first season of Loki. I haven't seen any of the trailers. I've been I've been excited about the second season of Loki since the second episode of the first season of Loki. Yeah. Yeah. Since they started ripping off your your hub thing from your D and D campaign, ah, it's fine. It's fine. No, they can it's, have it. it's it's. Listen, they did. They had a bigger budget. They can run with it harder <laughs> than I could. <laughs> they had dedicated writers. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much like I immediately made that connection though. Like the timing was perfect because we were just starting to get into the weird shit yep. of of what you were establishing, and and you tried to create this sort of visual. Um, and then. And then it's basically uh, all Loki. that was missing in that like one episode of Loki where you're really getting to see the TVA was like this futuristic flying machine that in character you're not really supposed to understand hanging from a ceiling. Yep. Yep. Or, you know, the train that turns into a wagon, that turns into a car, that turns into a truck, that yep. turns into a wagon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. You know, so, there have been a lot of times where I've come up with an idea for something and then sort of presented it or written like some kind of short story or something. And then I, I see something that someone else has written at the same time and it's the same thing. Yeah. I'd like to think it's and, great minds think alike, but I don't think that's the truth. No. And yes, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of, and I think you know, the reality is, is there's, there's, only so many ideas that any one person can sort of jump to that idea, given the context of everything around them. Yeah. You we know, all steal the from the minds. same greats. We all steal from the same greats, but we're also all primed for the same, same yeah. leaps based on, you know, whether it's related or not, the same general context around us. We're put in a situation where, you know, it's natural to have people making similar similar creative leaps you know it isn't it isn't necessarily even just ripping material from something that came before like it can feel original but we're jumping to the same original conclusions same original ideas based on you know everything that we've we've grown up with and digested so nah, it is what it is all part of the same gestalt it's a jump to conclusions matt Uh, we were talking about actually watching that last week. It's been a while since I've watched it. Yep, me too. That was one of those movies that I used to bust out about once a year, maybe a little bit more frequently. And it's probably been five or six years since I've watched it. 
Well, don't work in that kind of office. It's, it's office space for those of you who don't know what we're referring <laughs> to. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't work in that kind of environment anymore. So it's, it's almost going to be nostalgic to go back and watch it. There was a yeah. time where I used to show that movie to trainees. <laughs> like after I'd do training with them two, sometimes four weeks, uh, in those types of office environments. I'm like, yeah, this is basically your job. It's the last day of training and I don't want to, I don't feel like doing anything with you guys. So let's watch office space. I mean, it's a good introduction to I'd, office I'd, life. I'd like to say that, you know, I, I, I created appropriate expectations for them for what their life was going to be like for the next one to 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, there are still people who are working there. Yeah. Still in that call center. That's insane. Hey, and good on them, man. Like, it, you know, we we look back on it and gripe. Like, it's it's become cartoonish for us. Yeah. But it wasn't the worst of jobs. It know. was darn close to the worst job I've ever had. Yeah, but no, you know, like it was, it was, it was first world bad job. Yes. Oh, for sure. 100%. You know, like cartoonishly yeah. so. Like there's a reason why something like office space resonates because it, it, it is cartoonish when you even take five minutes to look at your situation and realize how ridiculous it is without, you know, the, the day-to-day -day connection to it. It's like, oh, fuck, this is just kind of bonkers when you think about oh. it, but. So Bonkers in a first world way, but yeah. Yeah, it's very, very much a classic Dilbert cartoon. Same stuff. So it's been a little bit since our last session. And yeah. uh, one of the things that we've talked about a few times on this show is that we both wanted to get back to reading more. Um, we talked about, you know, e-readers and, and we've certainly talked about fantasy literature and stuff a few times and between sessions uh, as we were just i forget how the conversation started we were shooting the shit on discord about something the idea came up you know what let's just start a book uh -huh. well we'll read it and we'll talk about it on the show and uh well we kind of did that uh and i think now it's going to become a regular segment so i'm going to roll some oh, shit that's right when i was your age television was called books this is a special book. Second Princess Bride reference in our stingers. I, I Not might enough. Just, might just tear up a little bit. So we decided to start reading or read uh, the Patrick Rothfuss Kingkiller Chronicles book starting with The Name of the Wind. Uh, how far did you get into it? I finished it. Okay, I did too, actually. <laughs> I was like, I want to get, I was, it was so funny because we were talking earlier in the week and it's like, well, you just, we'll just get a couple of chapters, like two or three chapters in. And then I basically, I've missed out on a whole bunch of sleep this week because I just couldn't put it down. Like it was one or two o'clock in the morning and I get up at, at 5.30 to go to work <clears throat> and, you know, one o'clock in the morning, I'm looking at it and going, one more chapter? Mm -hmm. Maybe not because it is, it is a substantial book. Like, I mean, I read it on my Kindle. I don't know what the book is like in real life, but I imagine that you could kill somebody with it. I found the opposite. 
Really? I found like it was it was an it, it was substantial enough. But like I even look at it like I I look at the page count. I read it on my phone, so my page counts are heavily inflated, right? Like the, the yeah. was, I don't know over a thousand pages on this. But I look at the the what would be the page count for the second book, and this like it's double essentially oh. the first book. Well, thank goodness because I need more. So I found it. It was enough. I didn't find it too much. No, you know, I, like I definitely, was... I definitely didn't think that it was like it wasn't fluffy. It wasn't like reading, uh, you know, Stephen King, The Stand, which I really enjoyed, and there was lots of it there. But there's lots of it that could easily be cut without hurting the story. <laughs> um, this this book was was sufficiently lengthy to hold the amount of story that's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, without without feeling overstuffed, without feeling uh, padded, it definitely was not a Robert Jordan book. No. Um, so so before we get into spoiler territory, <clears throat> I'm just going to go back to some of the conversations we've had this week because I now want to clarify some stuff. Okay. So we we talked about reading this book, and I just said, here's my list of like books that we were, you know, this has been on my radar forever. Like it, it's actually probably sort of offensive to people. That I haven't read this book in particular. I can never a lot heard of, of it. Yeah, really? I it is never always, it. always, always in like when you talk about, hey, give me the top five modern fantasy. You know, when you're when you're trying to get beyond the Robert Jordan stuff and, and into that sort of modern mm-hmm. fantasy stuff. And and to be honest, like I I haven't read a lot since modern fantasy was a thing. It's been 15 years since I've sat down and read a book like this. You know, and and the stuff that I was reading before would be what I would call like the last gasp of that old school fantasy stuff. You know, stuff that was starting to break the mold, but was still that formulaic fantasy, still had all the old tropes and and had all of the baggage and and things that tended to come with it. Stuff like racial stereotyping and whatnot that a lot of modern fantasy, Tolkien, you know, I'm going to reference some of that stuff in a bit. Anyway, getting back to our conversation, though. Uh, we talked about reading it. You said, uh, I've started reading. I'm hooked. I might actually finish the book by Friday. We intended on recording Friday. It's now Sunday. Uh, I said, nice. It's good. Uh, you know, I heard the dude. I started late. You said, it's really good. Really good. I think it's right up your alley. It's a style that will really gel with your taste, question mark. I want to explore that. What did you think? When you said that, um, that I would like about this book, because I think at that point you'd read less than ten chapters. I I might have been on chapter eleven by that point. Um, it was the narrative reminded me a whole lot of the sort of wall of text that we get at the beginning of uh, a D and D campaign that you're running. Uh, like the sort of setting the scene appropriately with. Uh, with things that don't seem like they're much until later on when you realize, oh, that was actually setting up something. Uh, it was it was more of a feeling than anything else. And the reason taste had a question mark, by the way, was uh, because I was I was trying to think of a a sesquipedalian word to put in there, and I couldn't think of it. So I'm just like, it basically means taste, right? It's right up. It's sort of your, you know. Mm-hmm gestures vaguely at at everything um it was it was just like the feeling of of getting into the book it's like okay this this 
sounds like a lot of words, but they're all supposed to be here. They're in the right order and they mean what they're intended to mean. Right. Whereas somebody who maybe doesn't particularly understand it very well would think, wow, this, this is a lot of words, right? When you actually listen to the words, it's like, yeah, these, these words all need to be here. Um, hmm. One of the things that is sort of, is, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but mm-hmm. uh, it, one of the things about reading things that really gets to me is not even so much the story. Like I don't, there are two ways that a book can sort of hook me in. One is that the story is great. Right. And Piers Anthony is a really great um, example of that, where his writing is not great. Like he is not a good crafter of words. Like he stacks words like they're bricks. They mm-hmm. have no grace and no style. But the house that he's building is quite nice. Right. And then there are other things. And I can't think of an example off the top of my head where they put words together really, really well. And the story, I mean, it's no hell. But, you know, like all of the words, uh, it's like this this sort of graceful dance of of verbiage that goes on onto the page. And this this book was both. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like all of the words kind of need to be there. There was a couple of sort of minor stumbles in the early part of the book where I thought that that particular idea wasn't constructed perfectly. It was still good. Mm-hmm. But there were a couple of instances, and I don't have any, I'm sorry, I didn't make any notes. This is the unfortunate mm. thing. I thought to myself, I want to make notes about this book so that I can talk about it well. And then I got right into it and just read the whole thing. It didn't learn me, didn't make any notes. Um, but there were a couple of, as I say, a couple of bits at the beginning where I was like, man, that could have been a little tighter. But once once I got to like chapter three or four, it was just like, it's like you're rolling downhill in a snowball and it's just... It's just gathering speed as you go. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a couple of complaints about the story. I have some some general commentary too. Uh, I think we'll 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 save the story until after. I, I want to sort of stop and talk about expand on the the writing and and the, the narrative style because it's what hooked me. I didn't mm-hmm. make the connection to like the D and D stuff, and, and not only how just in general people run D and D games, but specifically my own setup for D and D games, and like it, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And in the context of some of the 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 commentary I had about this book, like it makes sense why I do things that mm-hmm. way. You know, it isn't it isn't just a, a similarity that resonates with me. A lot of the stuff that I've read that I really liked shaped me into to doing things like that. And and as it uh-huh. turns out here, appreciating things that also do the same thing. So uh, I'm going to go on for a little bit here. Stop me and interrupt me anytime you want to add to it, make any sort of commentary. This isn't... Um, this isn't well-organized thoughts. I just made a bunch of point form notes here. So right. You're, you're better organized than I am because I'm basically <laughs> shooting from the cuff here. So uh, the meat of this book features narration from the first person perspective, uh, specifically the perspective of somebody who's a bit of a wise ass. That's checkbox number one for me. Oh, I have some books Things for that you. I really, really like. Um, it wasn't only that, though, because there is this sort of contrasty uh, chapters that sort of pull back into the third person point of view. Um, that happen in the present, you know, everything else is sort of the, the flashback. Yeah. It's, 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 it's 
autobiographical in nature and, and, and the narrative changes and, and that narrative changes is sort of shorthand for you to be like, okay, well, we're in the present, we're in the past, yada, yada, yada. But writing in that first person narrative for me allows you to do things that you can't do when writing from second or third person that are just so important to hooking me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those people to go back to what you said about having a lot of words. I'm not one of those people that can have a lot of well-strung together words that amount to nothing or amount yeah. to, to very little. Um, now, I appreciate that in small doses, Patrick Rothfuss did that for me, and he did it in a way that I really, really liked here, but it was small doses. But the first-person perspective allows you to take, and I think this is probably the most important element, an unlikable character from any other perspective. Like if you were to, if you were to write this from a, either the, the perspective of a different character in the same story, mm -hmm. or uh, even just try and portray it in a, a typical third person point of view, the protagonist of this story would be one of the most unlikable characters um... you could read about. Like he, he's, you know, and we can expand on that a little bit later. He no. he is the Mary Sue, but like without yes. without being inside his own mind, he would just you know imagine being another person at this school. He would be the character that you know the young upstart, full of himself, cocky, better than you at everything, better looking at you, more talented, luckier than you in a lot of instances. And yes. while that is all true. When you pull back into that first person narrative, you're getting his his evaluation of himself sort of injected into the words. So while the 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 happenings of young Kvoth are are you know being laid out in front of you, you're getting this commentary along with it that says, Yeah, I was, you know, I was a shit. Like I was a fool. I was an idiot. I was and and that makes it's so that you can take this unlikable character and relate to him. You can you can find things that normally you would because you're you know you're seeing behind the curtain. You're you're seeing that yes, while this would be, if you only had half the story, an yeah. unlikable character. When you get the full story and the context and everything else, he resonates you uh, with you in a way that he wouldn't. I would I'd like to interject just to to comment on the the Mary Sue bit because that was that was something that that. Uh came up to me because i don't i don't have an objection to characters sort of being like that um sometimes so it can be done badly it was done really well here and one of the reasons that I, and I, I was reflecting on this as i as real as i realized like this this character this growth is absolutely a mary sue the reason that it it wasn't a problem for me was because in in spite of all of his talents um, in spite of all of all of his gifts, right? He's still not able to be successful, mm -hmm. right? Like he always seems to find a way out of a scrape. But it's like he only any anyone else, anyone less than 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 that Mary Sue character would not actually have gotten out of that situation. Mm -hmm. So, and I and I didn't say it as if it were a negative, but it is nope. like in order to appreciate a character. The way I do, you have to get that that 
the rest of the story, the inner dialogue, the the contrast, you know. Yeah. And one of the things that this book does a particular, and I assume the whole series is going to, does a good job of contrasting, intentionally calling out, especially in the way the, the book ended. Like you just saw how intentional it was. You know, there's the, the reality of the life of Quoth. And then yeah. there's the legend of Quoth. Yes. And, you know, if you if your only insight into the character was through the legend of Quoth, written as a sort of a third person thing, that Mary Sue aspect would be a negative thing. And it really wasn't. It absolutely was not in this book. No, it wasn't. It was it was very much an insight into the fact that it's it's very much like watching someone's life through their Facebook updates. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't see the pain. You don't see the struggle. All you see are the happy moments. Mm -hmm. Right. And the legend of growth is very much, you know, here's what everyone sees is his successes, is the things that people remember. And it gets inflated and uh, sort of uh, prettied up for general consumption in order to be a legend. But you don't realize like the, the whole thing is also painful as he's living through it. Yeah. Now, this book reminded me very much of two books. And they're, they're two of my favorite books. And I, I want to make a clear distinction between two of my favorite books and two of the best books, because these are not the best books. But they're books that really hooked into me. And, and by calling attention to them, it's really going to sort of, like, I think this book that, that Patrick Rothfuss wrote is a bit of a miracle. Because I've seen somebody, I've seen a lot of authors, including some of my favorite authors, again, not the best, but my favorite, try to do what he did, and it just completely fell flat. Uh, two of my favorite books that are sort of in this style that worked for me, uh, Belgareth the Sorcerer and Pulgara the Sorceress. They're written by David Eddings, and they were essentially um, autobiographical in nature, but they came after a five-book series. So you had five books worth of context that, you know, again, I, I love the Belgariad, and then uh, technically they came after two five-book series, Belgariad and Malorium that were i enjoyed them on their own merits like they're they're i have a sort of a childhood like they were my fantasy when i grew up so i'm I'm completely biased but if i look at them objectively like they were bog standard hero's journey formulaic fantasy he had his own things that he did well as an author that i still find a lot of authors can't do like this this inherent camaraderie and dry wit between like you know injected into a how it's written but b their relationships between characters that touched me even if they were just you know super simple one-dimensional characters like the characters were less important than the relationships between the characters and that's what made having a couple of key characters who were you know people that had lived basically since not the beginning of time but forever thousands of years old when people lived 100 years kind of thing come back and, and and write an autobiographical piece allows you to take everything that you had in those 10 books and and um use that to build off of so these characters are established any of the commentary that gets injected into the first person point of view has context and that's why it really really works there david eddings the same author that wrote those has tried to do standalone stuff where he didn't have all that context to build off of uh, Redemption of Althalus comes to mind as a book that while I enjoyed it, it really, really fell flat. Patrick huh. Rothfuss here managed to do it without having books worth of context to give the, the, the first person stuff weight. 
and he pulled it off. And, and to me, just based on the stuff that I've read and the amount of times I've seen this not go well, is a little bit of a miracle, even if it is a flawed miracle. I mean, it's it, it, you can definitely tell that he has a great deal of talent. It's funny that you you mention sort of the all of the stuff underneath and behind, because world building is a big thing when you're trying to build a fantasy of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just it just occurred to me, literally, as you're saying that, that there really isn't a whole great deal of world building, right? It all comes out in context uh, during the story, mm-hmm. which is a really great way to do it because it's subtle. Like, I didn't even really realize it was happening, but I understand really how this world works, yeah. right? Uh, it, and it's in, just, in, it's there. And contrasting to most fantasy, I appreciated that this book opened with a couple of maps. Mm. I I have no idea, having finished the book of the geogra- uh, geography of any of the world, um, you know, there's some certain drops of certain places, names of places, yep. whatever, but none of that matters. Nope. And in most fantasy, it would. Like, could you imagine Middle Earth without oh, Middle Earth? Book? No, you'd be right? like, where, where the hell are they going? What is What is this? Where is this in relation to that? Why is it taking them 300 years to walk across like the County? Yeah. And, and this book is, is, you know, and, and, it, and again, this is going to sound like a negative, but it's not. For most of the book, not a lot of what you would consider story compared to other epic sort of fantasy stuff. Not a lot of story happens, like, you know, climactic events, big developments, like it is. I'm going to draw a a parallel here. Imagine Harry Potter. No, it's not the only time I'm going to draw this parallel. This book is nothing like Harry Potter. It's very much like Harry Potter. (laughs) It is very much like Harry Potter and that like it's got a school setting and stuff. But imagine the first Harry Potter movie or or for those who've read the books, the, the books. Imagine that without the underpinnings of Voldemort or he who shall not be named and and all of that stuff. Like that all takes a backseat here. It it almost doesn't exist. This is, this is the, the slice of life vignette sort of approach to just watching Harry Potter go to school. Yes. He learns some, some, some stuff and some big things do come up, but there isn't this overarching, obvious slap you in the face. Here's here's point B that we're going to get to eventually. We we get a little bit of it, like some of his motivations is is to learn about these the uh, Chandrians. Chandrians, yeah, right. That's, but that's... it is so backseat to everything that happens in this story, and it's it's great. It is. It's it's so it's it's so subtle the way that he he sort of puts that together. It's like yeah, it's kind of his driving motivation. But to go back to Harry Potter, imagine. Harry Potter, but you basically get up to the sorting hat and that's, that's where you're done. Right. Like that's about, and not only that, but imagine, imagine that you watched Harry Potter go to regular school for like the first half of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then you get up to kind of the sorting hat and that's where you stop. Now the school setting itself is one thing that didn't resonate with me. Like just in concept, that thing, I know it has a lot of appeal to a lot of people. It doesn't to me. I don't know if it's because I didn't, didn't do post-secondary education until like I was well into my adult life. So I don't look at that as sort of a nostalgia thing. Like I think a lot of people do. And it doesn't, doesn't really resonate with me anywhere that I see it. Um, 
Before we we move on out of the the the, the first person sort of delivery, I just I want to highlight a couple of things. Uh, I actually copied some 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 text that sort of illustrates <gasps> some of the quotes. things that I like. Uh, some quotes. Uh, one of the reasons that I do like, and I, we talked about a lot of words before, mm-hmm. right? That first person narrative delivery allows you to take shortcuts. It's like paint a picture uh, because it's worth a thousand words. But in this case, mm-hmm. you're painting a picture through less words. Yes. Uh, so the first thing that I want to want to call is these are moments where I just like I had to put the book down because they either made me laugh. Made me made me smile like widely to the point where it's like, oh, I see what you did there. And it's yep. great. And people listening to this probably just out of context aren't going to get it. But it really, really ties closely to that sort of snarky, smart ass kind of first person experience. Uh, the first one's from chapter 10. Uh, called uh, LR and Several Stones. Now, this is where a mentor character, Ben, is teaching Quoth, our protagonist, about sympathy, which is lesser magic. Well, it's sympathy magic. It's actually pulled from a real-world belief. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Anyway, this entire sentence here is like, I don't know, a dozen words long. And it tells me more than a thousand words could about this character. Uh, Quoting Quoth, I tried and tried. It was the most difficult thing I'd ever done. It took me almost all afternoon. (laughs) I loved, yeah, there was a bunch of things where his subtext was like, this was, this was really hard. It took, it took like 15 minutes before I mastered this thing. Right. now. And this goes back to the Mary Sue and like, you know, how you see it differently from different perspectives. Um, stuff like this, where he's, he's, he's as a character, he's recognizing it, first of all, the, the ease of which he's mastering it. And yes, he's a little bit, you know, he's a bit of a braggart about it. But at the yes. same time, like you, you, you're able to appreciate it. And, and the snark, the snark is real. And that that one line, it took me almost all afternoon juxtaposed with i'm learning something that is incredibly difficult and i'm still going to pretend that it's incredibly difficult for me with this snarky little thing just tells you everything you know about you need to know about this character the the mindset of him that you just wouldn't get that through like a typical third person sort of narrative uh and then you also get the funny shit this is the moment I honestly, I laughed at this statement the most in the book. And it is the dumbest throwaway line that has nothing to do with anything. But this is the type of color, flavor in, in, in this type of writing that I really, really like. Uh, this is from chapter 14, The Name of the Wind, uh, where Ben is providing both some further instruction. Uh, quoting, he then proceeded to shout about Alpha and Beta a sign that he was in a genuine good mood. Uh, Now, Alpha and Beta are donkeys. (laughs) Uh, They took it as calmly as ever, in spite of the fact that he accused them of things I'm sure no donkey has ever willingly done, especially (laughs) not Beta, who is possessed impeccable moral character. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 
you know, it's uh, it's a throwaway line just about how a character is interacting with his his donkeys and and you know he's he's anthropomorphizing them as a character. Like these aren't important characters in the book. The the, the donkeys come up like three times, and it's just you know it's 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 descriptive text the same way you're you know describing a sunset or you're you're describing a particular place. Like it is the donkeys so, were especially donkey like. Yeah, so unimportant. But to just take a minute to to turn a donkey into like just a momentary cartoon character and it was a very big thing too about uh about sort of painting a a flavor of ben's character Mm -hmm. which is his name was abenthi i think was his full name yeah i'm really bad at remembering the names of characters in books um i would also like to point out that it's very funny that you have some quoth quotes uh i'm pronouncing the v but yes yeah, so, I'm, so that's, I'm trying to almost pronounce the V. That's the thing with fantasy in general, is that names, like even when I do D&D shit, like the names are often just a little bit intentionally um, alien in, in their construction and, and just to make them sound like fantasy. Uh, I think he did a good job of not doing that you know, just for the point of doing it in this book, the main character, like in the first chapter, I think, no, maybe it would have been chapter three as he's first talking to Chronicler. He explains, you know, this is my name and and basically how it's pronounced, which is is funny, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, Rather than a pronunciation guide, that's an entire appendix. Yeah. But there were enough names in this book book that were close to what I would consider normal anglicized kind of names that I actually mm-hmm. struggled with the intended pronunciation of them um, because of how they would be shortened. And, and I, I, I tried to fantasy them up a little bit because that's just <laughs> sort of in my nature. Um, so, so his one friend, Simon, Seaman, Simon, Simon, he calls him Sim. So I didn't pronounce it as Simon. But it's basically Simon with two M's. So I'm not sure how it was supposed to be pronounced, but that's one of those things where it's like, I fantasy that up. If I read an audiobook that maybe he narrates, I don't know if he narrated his own audiobooks. Um, he might pronounce it Simon, and I'm just like being weird about it. I don't really know. I would expect it would be pronounced Simon because it would be like, yeah. it's, it strikes me that that's a, a name that you would find in like a small village somewhere in Northern England. Like there would be one and that's, person that's who has how been I named was that in the last three hundred years. Yeah, yeah. I've I've been pronouncing it that way through the majority of the book. But the one that really got me, honestly, was uh, the uh, Dena, Dina, Diana, Diana. Yeah, Diana. Yeah. You know, and it's just like okay, yeah. you're you, she's intentionally as a character using different names and and twisting them, and it's like oh, I've got an alias, but it's really close to my actual name. Oh my God, she's. This is a funny thing. We need to talk about her character because it is. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've met this woman. I really do. Um, the whole, the whole uh, romance and romance has got to go in quotes because it's kind of fish. Like they're very definitely in love, and you know that, like in the first ten seconds of the book, but they're kind of not and i mean like he's totally hopeless and i wonder i wonder how much of that would be different again looking at it through a third person uh oh it'd be totally different be totally different like from hearing it from him it's like she's not sure maybe 
how he feels, but he's like he's totally sure how he feels, and he's not sure how she feels. It's it's very weird. But one of the things like a, a a complex woman in a fantasy story. Uh, yeah, like, it was you know, with with complex motivations and complex behaviors. We and... we don't know what she wants. We've gone through five hundred pages of text, and we're just not sure what her actual motivation is. The here's the here are the things we know. I, I think we probably should have said spoilers by now, but if not, spoilers now. Um, we we know that she's basically on her own and grifting her way through life. Um, we know she's good at it. We know she's somewhat fond of our main character, Quoth. Um, that's pretty much it. Like, we don't know where she comes yeah, from. We don't know where she's going. There's been hints that she's had some sort of traumatic experience in yes. the past, sort of mirroring what Quoth goes through. Yep. Um, there's been subtle hints that maybe she comes from a background similar to his, mm-hmm. um, but nothing concrete I, about it. I have a prediction. I have I have a wacko prediction. My prediction is that she's she's one of the Shandrian. Did that cross your mind at any point in the book? Um, certainly. The way the the later parts of the book uh, were written, so the the stuff around the wedding and and quote yeah. going down to uh, whatever the name of that little town was, yeah, uh, south of the university and and finding her there, yeah. Um, that is intentional. So it's either it's it's either meant to make you think that, or it's meant to foreshadow that. One of the two. Yeah. Um, it's either a red herring, or you're being smacked in the face with a salmon. It's one of those two. And I don't know which. It could go either way. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. All right. Um. Before we get too into too much more story, there's just one other thing that I want to call attention to, uh, just because this is like the poet part of of uh, Rothfuss's writing, and and I caught this a lot, especially once I back went back and just looked at the stuff that I really really liked and looked at the chapter titles, um, the sections, especially where he does pull back into the the third person narrative when he's dealing with present day stuff. Uh, the entire style of language changes. It becomes a little bit more flowery in, in terms of descriptions, a little bit more poetic and, and, and um, analogous in how he's describing characters. You know, like just the, the, the entire ch- tone changes. But it's also structurally almost circular in the, in the way the writing styles. So this, this is chapter two. So this is very, very early in the book uh, where we meet Chronicler for the first time. The chapter title is A Beautiful Day. Uh, I'm going to gonna skim through this because it's a little bit longer quote, but um, I was one, it was one of those perfect autumn days, so common in stories and so rare in the real world. The weather was warm and dry, ideal for ripening a field of wheat or corn. On both sides of the road, the trees were changing color. Tall poplars had gone a buttery yellow. While shrubby sumac encroached on the road, that was tinged with violet and red. Only the old oaks seemed reluctant to give up the summer. Their leaves remained an even mingling of gold and green. Okay, at that point, we've got a typic, typical opening to a, any, any fantasy novel chapter. Paragraph 2. Everything said, 
You couldn't hope for a nicer day to have half-dozen ex-soldiers with hunting bows relieve you of everything you owned. <laughs> the entire tone changes. He's now being robbed just by brigands, just guys doing, you know, highwaymen kind of thing. Yeah. And then a bunch of stuff happens in that chapter and he booknotes it. He had to admit it was probably the most civil robbery he'd ever been through. They'd been genteel, efficient, and not terribly savvy. Dot, 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 dot. As he shouldered his travel sack and satchel, Chronicler found himself feeling remarkably lighthearted. The worst had happened, and it hadn't been all that bad. A breeze tussled through the trees, sending poplar leaves spinning like golden coins down in the rutted dirt road. It was a beautiful day. He does a whole bunch of... One of the things, too, that I really appreciate, and it was called to mind by the uh, the phrasing of it's the kind of day that you hear about in stories but so seldom experience in real life. There's never any breaking of the fourth wall, mm-hmm. but he bumps into it hard, mm-hmm. right? And it's 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 subtle, kind of, right? But it's very much a poke... Like this is this is definitely a story. We know it's a story. You know it's a story. I know it's a story. I'm writing a story, mm-hmm. and it's a great story. Now this is this is sort of the most obvious example, and like this is slap you in the face, sort of obvious. But the chapter is called "A Beautiful Day." It gets introduced. It takes sort of an ironic uh, twist, uh, subverting expectations, but then it comes back around and sort of like almost like an essay where you're writing an introduction and a conclusion that basically mirror each other. Yeah. His, his writing style so often has that sort of circular construction um, that it, I don't know, it, it just is something that appealed to me. It stuck out. I noticed it a bunch of times and I wanted to call attention to it. it it's, I, I don't think that I ever particularly noticed that. Like I think it's it's subtle enough that if you weren't looking for it, it's not going to jump out at you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right? it can be those kinds of things. Like if you set that up and then didn't uh, didn't execute it artfully, could be really awful. And it didn't come across as forced because I, I think he sort of a lot of it was in those occasional interlude chapters that pulled away from the 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 biographical sort of first person stuff so he wasn't trying to do it all the time Mm -hmm. um but when he did like it just it did stick out to me a little bit and i'm like ah that's that's poetic you know it's it's above and beyond everything that happened in that chapter there's just sort of a that's a a wonderful quality to the delivery yeah that is, that's a wonderful chapter. It also introduces you to the Chronicler in a way that gives you some insights into just exactly how resourceful he is, mm-hmm. which is, is nice. Um, yeah, I really mm-hmm. want to talk about the ending of that book. Okay, so let's, spoilers, like, it, this is plot spoiler section now. Yeah. We're, we're, we're talking story. Again, like, subscribe, you know. Give us a give us a rating or whatever. Uh, we're we're almost done this section. If you just want to tune in later, but uh, uh, I don't know. We're rambling, so that we could be a while. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about books. We might be here for a week. <laughs> All right. So so we've already said that like not a lot of story in the traditional sense 
really mm-hmm. happened in this book. How did you you feel about that? I was okay with it. The only the only bit of it that I really didn't because it was mostly episodic, right? It, it very much felt like uh, like looking back on it, not while I was reading it, but looking mm-hmm. back on it and trying to look at it with like an analytical eye. It very much feels like a series of uh, like Dungeons and Dragons sessions, mm-hmm. right? Like it it could very well have been a like someone writing down, "Hey, we went and played D anD D, and this is what happened." Mm-hmm. Now um, that might not be coincidental. Um, I think I've mentioned before about Patrick Rothfuss played in one of my favorite D anD D actual plays. Now it wasn't a regular oh. weekly kind of thing. Um, but the Acquisitions Incorporated, so the Penny Arcade guys, they're one of the uh-huh. the earliest actual plays. Like they were doing it as an audio thing back in like 2007. Oh wow! Before like before fifth edition, it was actually when fourth edition had just come out. Uh, they had Will. We Wheaton need to talk about fourth edition at some point as well. Yeah, yeah, they had Will Wheaton for a while, and then um he dropped out with uh there there was a bit of stuff going on with some of the other guys but uh patrick rothfuss came in to play a character who incidentally makes a very very brief cameo in this book um as just a throwaway character i don't know if it'll be significant or not in the second book but in the 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 penny arcade acquisitions incorporated D stuff like they're the guys that would get on stage at pax and and, and mm-hmm. do their things uh, for years and years and years, Patrick Rothfuss played with him, and he played a character called Viari, which in this book, it was, unless you knew, you wouldn't even have, have noticed. It, at one of these, one of the points in time where both is sort of walked into the entrance of the archives to talk to, to one of the other people, mm-hmm. uh, this dude who misrecognizes oh, him as something the, else walks in. The guy the, with the, the, the sword and, and dagger, yeah. a little bit of a painted a little bit of a sort of a roguish kind of swashbuckler kind of picture. Gonna, he's going to show up later. He has to. I suspect so. Uh, they certainly set it up as, you know, next time I'm through, I'll, you know, we'll talk. Recognized yeah. both for what he was, you know, without any sort of any, any judgment about, you know, his background as, as a trooper and, and how he grew up. Um, anyway, uh, that character, Viari, is fleshed out and i don't know if it's if like how close it is or whether it's just like a, oh i'm going to take the name and the the physical yeah. description and and make a D character based on it but he has played that character in a D actual campaign like campaign for years so he has a D background i don't know how much of it he had before writing this book if any but i do oh, no. know that Certainly during the time you wrote the second book and, and definitely in the years that people have been waiting for the third book. That's, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm dreading getting to the end of the second book. Literally dreading it. Yeah. Um, more so than I was with, and I always forget what the thing is called, but the... Um, George R. R. Martin, the Song of Ice and Fire stuff? Yeah, Game of Thrones. Not a, yeah. yeah, Game of Thrones. Is that a Song of Ice and Fire? Yes. It's memory, sorrow, and thorn that is it's the dragonborn chair. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great series. Um. So I want to talk at the only, the only episode that happened in in sort of the the run up of the story that I didn't really like was them fighting the dragon. It felt. It felt like he got to that point in the book and was a little bit like, I don't know what to do. 
right? And not not in a really big bad way. Like it wasn't like I got to that point and went, oh, I don't, I want to stop reading. Because I have, there have been some books that I've gotten to that you can tell, like the author has gotten to. Because I know this has happened to me in stuff that I've written where I've gotten to a certain point and gone, like, I don't know what to do now. Mm-hmm. Like, what what happens next? I don't know. Um, yeah. Which which highlights another thing for me that I'll mention after you're done. Uh, it, I'm, that's pretty much it. It's just, I got to that point and it was like, it's almost like you're you're throwing... It's like you've proven your point, right? Like you've gotten to the end of your essay, you've given all of your arguments, you've presented your evidence, and this is just extra. Like it felt extra. There's some parts of it that feel like it need to be there. Like I get the, you know, he's got to find the lodestone, he's got to find the stuff, he's got to find the scales, he's got to, you know, deal with the, you know, the sort of like drug culture of the book. But at the same time, it's like some of this feels like not quite right you know and this this actually takes it back another parallel to uh harry potter um which while it was you know sort of pretty entertaining at the time you could really tell if you were reading the books that she was a new author who didn't really plan stuff out too much it was just like uh here's a cool thing that could happen right Mm -hmm. and i'll write it down and that's a perfectly fine way to tell a story um just makes it sometimes hard to to hang things together because you have you have this one episode that's just a little bit a little bit bigger a little bit different mm-hmm. a little bit out there i got a i got a different read on that myself uh now before i get into it i'll i'll go back to the the, the thing that i wanted to touch on was that unlike the harry potter books uh, it's a perfect sort of segue to that the one thing you can tell about this book is just how planned out it was and how much rewriting must have happened because there is so much setup and payoff of things mm. where as, as you started talking about it, like, I don't know, an hour ago when we first started talking about the book, the amount of things that you think at the time aren't important that have a payoff that come back. So, yes. you know, him going to the archives for the first time and the the book that he ends up getting is that, you know, mating practices of the, you know, which is the Chronicles Dracus or whatever, right? Which is yep. the, the book that, you know, I mean, he runs into a Dracus at the end. Now, getting back to that particular situation, I agree that it felt out of place, but I think that it was intentional. Like, uh, you know, a cynic would say, oh, well, he realized by the end of his book that he didn't have any big epic sort of climactic thing that most fantasy books had. But I don't think that's what happened. Um and there, there's a couple of things that, that lead me to think that way. One, he was very, very, very careful about while he was writing it, saying, this isn't a dragon. Like, this isn't what it would look like as an outsider looking at this. And B, why I think it was important was that you could argue that it was the one truly heroic thing that he did. It was right at the end of the book. And then you have the contrasting sort of epilogue type stuff afterwards, yes. where they're talking about the stuff that is the legend of yep. of both and this doesn't come up or even like immediately afterwards at school where he, he is uh after the thing with ambrose where um you know he's, he's on the horns he's just in yep. front of all the masters and and you know doling out punishment or whatever like it would have been easy and the the, the fantasy thing that would have happened would have been oh word about his good deeds had spread and that that made that an impact on decision, you know, like that happened. It was its own contained thing and nobody knew about it. And you could argue that it was one of the truly heroic things that he did 
you know, I mean, he had his small heroic moments, the stuff with saving, um, what's her name's character? Fela? Fela, Fela. Yeah, Um, like he had these small sort of heroic moments, but that was the one sort of like, oh, this is a fantasy book now. And it's like, it happened and nobody cared. I have to point out, like, there's a bunch of stuff because he's telling the story of himself as basically like a a 15 or 16 year old. Yeah. Um, And I have to point out that it's difficult uh, for, you know, like a gray beard to write something about, you know, teen years and have it feel kind of authentic. Because we all we all remember ourselves from that time, but it's really difficult to um, to write some kind of fiction and not impose the knowledge and confidence that you have now into what that person like can you imagine going back to high school in the the body that you had in high school but the brain you have now like high school would be so easy like it would just be it would be a walk in the park um so (laughs) the thing that stuck out to me was he went to her door knocked on her door and she shows up at the door basically naked and says do you want to come in and he's like no no no, i can't stay yeah you know and then later on he goes Oh my God. I'm an idiot. Yeah. She was asking me into her room and she was totally naked. Yeah. And I'm like, that was like, that, that rings so true. Right. Like, you know, like there's, there's a meme that's going around. It's like, I'm flashing back to that time that I was at a sleepover and, you know, like, you know, a girl and I were in bed together and she was, we were tickling each other and I was like, okay, time to go to sleep now. And then I rolled over and went to sleep. (laughs) It's like, what, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, and I mean, they've set up this character who I assume is going to turn into the exact opposite, right? Like at least the, 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 the legend of Quoth is he's going to be this, this, you know, dashing roguish kind of like, yeah. Sean Connery in the original Bond films. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, women are throwing themselves at him and like, and that's probably going to come in the second book. And I'm sure that the, the the writing is going to still find a way to dance around those tropes, but yeah. to have him portrayed and admit through his own commentary in this sort of autobiographical stuff is that like, I don't know anything about women. I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. You know, yep. it, it's great. It's a great way to do it because it, it will then give that character depth later that we wouldn't have got again through that sort of third person. Just, you know, this happened yep. and this happened. Um, I do. I also appreciate uh, the setup at the beginning because we we get we get the hero's journey so much, and it's it's okay to do the hero's journey. Like I don't want to mm-hmm. I don't want to piss on that, but at the same time, like so many times, it's like the opening of the book is, you know, the the main character is a kid at the thing, and he's totally innocent, and then something happens, and he's the chosen one, and he goes and he finds the magic sword, and he slays the dragon. And in this one, we very much get like uh, the like our introduction to our hero is this broken person, like he's broken, mm-hmm. and you don't know why. And that's really kind of the thrust of the story. And the thing that I'm reading to get to is like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And I'm very much afraid that because I mean, this, the book did did actually make me laugh out loud at times. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think I pissed off my wife a few times at three o'clock in the morning as I'm laying there you know laughing my ass off vibrating in bed yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's when i did most of my reading too it's just kind of a couple hours before before falling asleep for a few nights yep and it's just like it's like but there's also been times where it's like you know i gotta i gotta put this book down because i'm 
like uh, this is the thing this is how i judge what what is a good book have i had to put this book down because i am angry about what's happening have have i laughed at this book and has this book you know made my eyes water because i'm like this is really really sad um the only the only time i thought that the book that the writing plotting pacing or or whatever you want to call it was just a little bit and i don't even know exactly how to describe it it's almost like childish simplistic um was him taking the torch into the archives uh right before he got you know banned from the archives it's like and and not because not because i think that that the character should have spotted it or that he shouldn't have done it it was just like like i i literally put the book down at that point because i was like i can see what's coming like i can see it like you don't you don't take a torch into when you have a light source that is not flame you don't take flame into the you know the archival storage of the entire yeah, it world. was it was but i guess like the like the stuff with the how he dealt with women and how how he doesn't know anything about women it was one of those things that I think was intentionally meant to be telegraphed to us as the reader mm-hmm. that like, Agreed. Oh, this, this character is cocky as he is, as much as he knows as as much of a Mary Sue and ahead of the game relative to everybody else around him. He is, there's some obvious gaps. Yes. And thoughtlessness and, you know, a good that's one of the has ways to have weaknesses. Absolutely. And that's, I think that was one of the obvious sort of, Hey, I know you might be looking at this character. Like he's just a cocky little brat. Uh, yep. You know, he's what's a, going on. Obvi- yeah. You know, he's what's going on. You know, what's yeah. coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't like, I don't have an objection to the, the telegraphing so much as I thought it was handled just a little clumsily. Uh, and I would agree with that. It was, it was clunky. Um, uh, I mean, I wonder very if, minor knit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder if, you know, people who don't overthink this type of shit would totally would, miss would it. Care. You know, yeah, I, I don't think, think they would. We're just one of those few people that just look at it and they're like, well, it's, we're finding yeah. nits. We're intentionally finding nits. We want to talk yeah. about it later. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was a little bit of that reading the book too. It was a, it was a different experience to me because I've never actually done like, you know, book clubs or writing book reports in school was always really hard for me because I, re- I would read through things so fast and with, with such, such a sort of light understanding of what was happening, the book reports were always really hard. I want to talk about reading again just quickly before we put this down and move on to other things. But before I do, do you have anything else that you want to say about this book? I, I think it should be trying to book two for next week. Or, or should we we try and hold ourselves back? Because I'm not sure I can, to be honest. Uh, I'll probably start reading it. I I need to pace myself. Yeah, and uh, it's funny. So reading, like I say, I used to do this all the time. Like uh, you know, I used to read. Uh, I used to read a lot. Yeah. So like, it would be nothing for me to just pick a Saturday, let's say back in the day when I had nothing going on and start a book like this Saturday morning and finish it Saturday evening. I used to read quickly. I used to eat books. I have not done that in a long time. 
I read the ebook version of this book on my phone. And the entire process, even if it was just a few hours a day kind of thing, physically exhausted me and challenged me. There's things that I have forgotten, like getting into the right position to read my neck. Now, I, I did something in my shoulder a couple of weeks ago that, that's still bothering me. But just looking down at what I'm reading like this for uh -huh. multiple hours, like I'm tied in a knot. <laughs> I'm in pain. Yeah. I need time to recover from... Uh from doing absolutely no level of physical exertion here. Like this yeah. is, you know, out of shape, fat dude complaining about bending his neck. But I, I, I think, I think you might be a nerd, Shane. It's absolutely <laughs> true. But I, I need time to physically recover from reading this book. I know that if I get into the second book, I'm going to find myself in a position where I'm, I'm wanting to go through it very, very quickly. And I just, I need, probably a couple weeks just to breathe and then i need to, to to set up some rules for myself for how i read the second book well, you, have, I think... you have this number of, of hours in a day you're going to mm -hmm. go to a specific place where you're comfortable to do it yes you need you a know. reading chair yeah because I, um, I was doing it in bed i was doing it just kind of laying sideways on my uncomfortable couch and i'm paying the price for it now let me tell you yeah um, so I think that there might be a, an opportunity then to do something smaller sort of in between doing these. And I actually, I wrote it in our, our show note document. Okay. Uh, Stephen Brust, Bruce. Yeah. I have Christ. no idea how to pronounce it. Um, but he's, he does a, a series about a character named Vlad Taltosh. That is, it, it's that well is worth the, most, the read. Most D and D sounding name I've ever heard. It's, I mean, it's a traditional, um, oh God, um, oh, goulash. Sounds... Who, who makes goulash? What, what, where does that come from? It's not Polish, but it's, it's Western European. Like it's... Romanian. Yeah. It sounds very, very sort of. Yes. Yeah. I can't remember. He, he does specify Hungarian. It's a Hungarian name. Okay. Um, so yeah. And they're, they're reasonably short books. They're like almost novellas they're they're barely novels there are a bunch of them um but they're uh they're worth talking about i think so we could maybe do that for next week all right hey do you want to talk about some video games very very sure briefly? yeah i used to be an adventurer like you stay a while and listen so as you joked about last show this entire segment is your fault. <laughs> yeah, it is. And we need to change it. Uh, we were originally going to call it Retro Replay or something like that because we were like, let's go back and play a bunch of retro games. That's Which not. sounded like a great idea until you yeah. didn't. Oh, yeah, no, don't. <laughs> just don't. Don't so, do it. So I think this is going to become just a general video game segment of the show. And I don't know what we're going to call it yet. But... Uh, I've been starting to play Baldur's Gate 3. And, and this goes back to how good this book that we just read is, is I've had a few days here over this long weekend where it's like I can read this book or I can play Baldur's Gate 3. I've been looking forward to Baldur's Gate 3. I had this whole thing where like it was being released at a certain time on Thursday. Oh my I God, you're up talking my about it for a year. 
And then you you decided we needed to read some fucking books and <laughs> ruined my whole plan. Now, that isn't to say that Baldur's Gate 3, what little taste of it I've had so far, I think I've played two or three hours, isn't great. It's very good. If I didn't have something else that I wanted to do more, I probably would have played a lot more of it. I'm not sure how how well I'm going to stick with Baldur's Gate 3. Now, let me say it is... It is D&D. You absolutely need to play this game. It is not only just based on Dungeons and Dragons, but it is very, very clear that the people that have crafted this game play Dungeons and Dragons. But I bounced off of Divinity Original Sin 2. I wanted to love it. I actually really enjoyed playing it, but mechanically, uh-huh. interacting with the game, I just could not get into it like ignoring the story ignoring the plot ignoring the characters ignoring everything else physically interacting with the game control scheme was just so clunky and i've found that with basically like western style rpgs like forever and they just haven't haven't moved beyond that Uh, have you played divinity uh, original sin too i think i downloaded it at one point I, I actually think it's in my steam library i just i've never played it mm. now i am going to before i get into the rest of Baldur's gate 3 have to have to try and solve the problem of controls um because you know take something like a Baldur's gate one or two and then give you a camera that you can rotate see outside oh no but it, you like you're, you so you can zoom in and out like it, 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 you can zoom down into sort of a fixed third person or pull back into what would be your traditional isometric or fake isometric style view but you can also rotate the camera and you have to right so to contrast it with those old school games fallout baldur's gate or whatever you had this sort of angular top-down isometric view and you could count on things important being positioned so that you can visually see it it's not hidden behind walls and stuff like that games like divinity original sin 2 and this certainly rely on you being able to rotate the camera but it you know the control scheme by default when you're using mouse and keyboard is hold down your middle mouse button and move your mouse and you're constantly having to do that while almost having the weird sort of when we tried playing fallout one thing of you know right click to do this left click to do this right click two times to do this before you left click and it just i hate it i i, I want to love the game i haven't even got into the game enough to 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 say how good the game really is the control scheme and mechanics are just so painful for me i wonder if any of these games have ever considered uh integrating with a 3d mouse i don't know if you've ever seen one of these but most of the work I uh, hope I have enough slack here. Uh, most of the work that I do is CAD based, right? So I'm rotating stuff all the time to get where I'm going. And this this thing, basically, it's like pull up to zoom in and out, and then you can rotate things sort of on the screen and also uh, like like pitch and roll and yaw mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. It also has a bunch of buttons on it, but you can get a simple version, which I actually bought my this is that belongs to my work. 
Um, but I have a simple version, which is literally just the button. And it literally is just for like rotating cameras and stuff. The problem with them is that they don't have like Windows drivers. They have like a Windows API and the particular application has to implement drivers to use it. So a lot of games don't. It's just there so is unnecessary a, a, though, man. Like that might be a solution to a problem that doesn't need to exist. Yes, like, and may, maybe you know yes what, and maybe no. You know what I've never complained about? Controlling things in World of Warcraft. Okay, fair enough. Like, like here's a you know an expansive third person world that I can navigate in the way that you would most traditional third person things. Mm-hmm. Have the ability to both move my camera around in a way that makes sense and click on things when I need to click on things and whatnot. Like this game, if and I'm sure there'll be a mod for it. Maybe there's already one out. I haven't looked yet. That exists just to do it to make it function more like a. a like, I don't care about faking the isometric experience. I didn't like it to begin with. And this game just doesn't do enough to allow... Like, it doesn't have a isometric mode and a third-person mode. It has an isometric mode that you you can zoom in with your mouse wheel down to a third-person-ish camera, but you're still having to spin the camera, like, completely separate from your sort of characters that you're in sort of their position and it's just i like dragon age is an example dragon age origins did this so well where like you had a separate sort of isometric tactical mode so that you could have tactical combat where you're moving your camera around independent of your characters and you're you're planning your movement and actions and like this this you know that part of the scheme is fine it is literally Every other time when you're not in combat, where you're just walking around and exploring and moving around, it is so clunky compared to almost anything else that takes that sort of just MMO style or or typical third person sort of point of view and camera setup. And I hate it. I hate it. Funny that you mention that because I mean, I I sort of cut my teeth. We we did a lot of Unreal tournament back in the day, which I hate. I still hate, and I hate how good you are at it. Um, <laughs> some of, there was I, you know what? There was there 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 are times when I, I think to myself because I'm not really this person anymore that I wish we had been recording some of the epic rants that I went on as my my death count went over 500. Um. <laughs> anyway, my point is, is that like we did, we could sort of cut our teeth on those sort of first person, like Doom and Duke Nukem and Unreal Tournament and that kind of stuff. And then a lot of third person sort of over the shoulder shooters came out, which I'm still not a, a giant fan of, but like I really thought I would hate. And it turns out that I really don't like I don't mind them. Like we played a bunch of the the Zombie Army trilogy mm-hmm. sniper elite uh, stuff, which is all third person over the shoulder. And I actually I kind of like it. It's it's. It's nice. Um, and World of Warcraft was the same. When I first started playing EverQuest, um, it was it was difficult to get into third person view, right? Because they they really didn't think that you were going to want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in later years, it was all like because they eventually fixed that, and it was always in third person view. And it was like zoom in a little to look under there, and then zoom out a, a lot to like explore areas. So there's lots of uh, lots of sort of examples of that having been done well. So it it. Mm-hmm frustrates me to say i have a a friend uh hi john if you're watching i mean i've 
sent him a link to the show like five times now. He sent me a, a question today to say like, hey, I've, I've got Baldur's Gate 3. Are you going to download it and play with me? And I'm like, yeah, budget doesn't really stretch to that right now. Um, but he asked me, like, should I play Baldur's Gate 1 and 2? And I'm like, oh, boy, that's complicated. Because the answer is you should probably watch someone else play Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. Because the story is great, everything everything about the game is great, except trying to play it. And hearing that Baldur's Gate 3 has similar control scheme issues is kind of disappointing. Yeah. And, and, and maybe like a mod fixes it. There's nothing in the game settings I saw. Like, this is how ridiculous it is. It's a full, lush 3D world. Okay? It's, it's not faux 3D. Like, we're not talking mm-hmm. about, you know, Baldur's Gate 1 here. Or Diablo 2. It's a 3D world. It gives you the ability to zoom down into a third-person view. And you can hold your middle mouse button to spin your camera around. But not up and down. You can't look up. You can't look down. You're just you're turning the camera. Literally in, in one oh. axis. And it's clunky. Um, and, and with the, the default control setup. Like, if I, even if I could have just moved it to right-click. So that I'm interacting with it in the same way you might interact with some other third-person games. That'd probably be okay, but that's going to break so much other default functionality. Like, just let me go into third-person view, have my 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 view locked to my mouse position. If I need to click on something, I'll center it in my screen to click on it. Yeah, give me a reticle. Give me Cyberpunk 2077. I got to click on stuff there and it works. Right. You know, and it is, it is like, uh, it's the same studio that did Divinity. And I think they did it intending to recreate the experience of those older sort of isometric faux 3D games. But I think they've done it at the detriment to, you know, modern audience. Well, and hey, everybody's raving about the game. This is a me thing more than it is a Baldur's Gate 3 thing, I think. I think a lot of people are getting past it. But, man, like, it is an obstacle. Everything else about the, you know, like I say, I've played a couple of hours now. Everything else about the experience has been amazing. Aside from the fact that I've wanted to put it down to read this goddamn book. But... <laughs> um, it might just be a fact that, you know, that you've, you're starting to get old and you don't like learning new things. But it isn't a new thing. I didn't like learning it 30 years ago when it was old. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, there there have been, and, and again, it's it's that fine line of, like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to create Baldur's Gate 1-2 in a new way or that style of game, the old sort of American or Western CRPG experience? Like, Bioware, for an example, their own spiritual successor to that kind of stuff, Dragon Age Origins, didn't do that. I love Dragon Age Origins. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 was, because it was based on the, the Neverwinter Nights 2 engine, I think. Uh, uh, no, KOTOR would have been before Neverwinter Nights 2. Maybe Pretty it was sure. the Neverwinter Nights. Uh, it, either way, it was, it was one of the, the Neverwinter yeah. Nights was like, it was based on the, or like the same, same engine. Yeah, and I remember I remember it being significantly different because in one of the things about uh, I can't remember whether it was the original Neverwinter Nights or the Neverwinter Nights 2. 
that like really took me out of it was that you couldn't like you you couldn't lock into a, a 3d uh, an isometric view right because i don't mind the the isometric overhead like i played a bunch of diablo 3 and i kind of enjoy it um i, I mean i still love diablo 2 which is just pathetic um but like that that doesn't bother me but the idea that like you can't you can't okay this is the view that i'm going to have like either give me i float behind my character right and mm -hmm. i can look up and down as as you're describing like that sort of wow uh, interaction experience um or lock me into a 3d isometric don't don't give me 3d isometric and then i've got to change to this camera style where i can pan and move tactical or like give me two depending on what situation i'm in but when you do it that way you have to be tactical about the placement of the stuff so that it is visible in an isometric view so yeah. that it's not hidden behind a wall that you're counting on a person rotating the camera to see. Yeah. Now, what I will say is it's not as clunky as, uh, man, I can't remember what games they were. There were a few games, maybe it was the original Divinity. There's a few games that I've played recently that had that sort of isometric thing, but also had shortcut keys, which essentially just rotated the camera 90 degrees. Yep. And the, the Fallout 2 had that, I think. Okay. There's been a few games, and I can't remember which one immediately that it like it stuck out as being like, this is this is horrible. But having experienced the alternative where I'm dragging things around and I don't have full freedom of, of movement with yeah. with the middle mouse button to spin the camera. And it and it's one of those games where like ASDF or, or the arrow keys will especially like in a tactical view. And I imagine it's been the same in a lot of things. It moves the camera around almost like playing Age of Empires and scrolling, you know, to the yes. edges of the screen would. It it doesn't move it with respect to your fixed point of view, your character. It just moves the 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 point of view floating over the map. So then you have to like double click on your character portrait to lock the camera back on them. And then yes. if you're spinning your mouse around, then you're kind of panning back and forth based on their perspective yeah it's it's a it's a tough thing to switch i find this i find i have this problem when i'm looking at like street view and google maps right where uh like you can you can hold down the button and rotate to look at places but it's exactly opposite to every other thing that you rotate the camera for and that that drives me bonkers but i mean again it's a me thing so uh Maybe you'll learn to love it. Maybe somebody will mod it. We'll see. Uh, have you been playing anything past couple of weeks? I haven't. You know what? I, I've been thinking that I want to log back into to Cyberpunk, and there's a bunch of stuff that I want to look at and play. And with unpacking and stuff, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I sit down and we watch TV for a half an hour, and I go, I should go play a video game. And then I just think, maybe I'll just go to bed. So... No, reading books has actually been really nice because it means that I can like lay in bed and fall asleep with a book in my hands. Very nice. Uh, I wanted to do a bit of an update on my D and D games, but I think given that we're an hour forty in, uh, I'll hold off uh, until next week to do that. We've made some significant sort of progress in my my Tuesday night game campaign wise, and uh, I just wanted to touch on it. I know that. Um, some of the peeps listening have been kind of 
keeping pace with what's been going on in my games and i really haven't talked about it in forever so but we'll save that for next week and we'll move into some pod bag stuff you've got mail all right we heard from ian this week shocker <laughs> uh and he has some questions for us. Some of them are following up questions from last week. Um, first one, I really enjoyed your discussion about the zombie apocalypse and how you felt you would fare in the aftermath. Slightly related and sadly more attuned to reality. How would you fare in a post-nuclear war apocalypse? For reference, uh, the book and subsequent film, The Road, which I haven't seen. Uh, Good. Uh, would be the setting world uh, that you'd be dealing with. Well, um, being that I live right next to um, a fairly substantial military base and a nuclear research facility, um, I think that uh, my survival time in a nuclear apocalypse would be approximately 0.01 seconds. Um. But assuming that I, I survived like the first bang, um, I'm I'm pretty good at being self-sufficient. So I think I think it could be pretty good. I would definitely avoid people because I um, I've I don't know about any of the people listening or yourself, but I've seen how people behave on the internet where there's no real rules. So when the rules go away, some people do things that are not conducive to social stuff um so yeah yeah i think a lot of my answers like to last week talking about zombies would apply here i mean yep. the one thing is we live in canada you know so we've got a couple of things working for and against this one almost our entire population is butted up against the u.s border so like if the you know bombs just were to drop now and they wanted to, to, you know, let's let's say we're talking in the tens of megatons here. And they were targeting a significant number of U.S. cities. Um, the reality is, is that, like, a big part of our population probably would be done right away. Very, very quickly. Now, if we had warning, if it was like an escalating conflict where it's like, ooh, this is going to become a shooting war. We also have a country that is mostly empty. So it would be fairly easy for the population to just scatter just into the woods and scatter. And, you know, uh, that would mean a couple things for us. That would mean, one, we would have pretty ready access to water supply uh, because uh, pretty much everything sort of, at least here, moves uh north to south so if we had contaminated uh the great lakes and the saint lawrence seaway for example like we would have access to enough freshish water from uh glacial melt and and, and things up north that like our day-to-day -day shit should be okay barring like severe fallout conditions um obviously access to medicine and, and things like that would be would be a challenge, but I think like if, if we could move past that into just, you know, surviving, like yep. surviving out in the wilderness on my own, I'd actually probably do pretty okay at that. I had, uh, and Ian knows this, <laughs> funny enough, 
I had this whole plan and I prototyped a product for preppers. <gasps> Bug out bag. Uh, it was, yeah, it was the, the whole setup was basically going to be, you know, you know, in the, 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 in the age without, you know, access to the internet with no info, you know, all of that shit, the man with all the information is king. And essentially it was a, like a raspberry Pi and an ink kind of screen, uh, built-in batteries, solar charger on the outside of a case that had like a really fake, like it was, it was bullshit. Like it was not functional in the way that it was going to be, but it was like chicken wire wrapped case essentially to build a Faraday cage. It was meant to just, you know, I never actually sold it, but it was, was supposed to be directed at preppers and, and, and their ilk that was going to have like, you know, Wikipedia, like you can download I was uh, just about to say, yeah. I found it today. You can download Wikipedia. Yeah. Not only can you download it, they encourage you to download yeah. it. You can download the contents of Wikipedia. It would have been like scraped articles from like WikiHow and stuff like that. All available in this completely offline, hardened, military protected <laughs> Faraday cage EM proof. Ah. <laughs> uh. If I had any advance notice, like it would take oh, me. Oh, download Wikipedia. Yeah, it'd take me half an hour to to yoink a whole bunch of shit that would be absolutely not essential, but like a a, a huge Useful. boon, not only to like making sure that isn't lost, like from an archival and preservation perspective, but also like I'm I'm perfectly aware of my own limitations, like. Plants, for instance, you know, let, let's say I need to, to understand what plants I can and can't eat without getting sick. I have a, a rudimentary knowledge of that at best. And I know that in a situation like that, I would need to have some sort of reference material, some sort of guide, whether it's a, a survivalist handbook or whether it's something a little bit more scientific that outlines that. And with a, like literally, oh, the, the, the nukes are in the air. You've got, you know, half an hour. I would have that information packaged up and, and in a spot where I, I would have everything I need to access that information and, and, and have it available to me. So I think I would do okay in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah. There would be Reference challenges. Miracle again. mile again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There would be challenges with, you know, like I say, my wife is requires a bunch of different medications for a bunch of different things that like, I would probably have to to knock off a few drugstores or something just to make sure that we had ample supply of that stuff. Um, but focusing on everything else, I think I'd do okay. Yeah, the the I think that the thing that gets sort of lost when, especially when you know nerdy people think about these kinds of things, is that we forget the people around us and how much we rely on them for. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our sanity, right? For our, our, our mental and emotional well-being and, and how hard it might be to keep sort of that together, right? Yeah. Physically, I'm sure we could survive. You know what? I, I don't know. Uh, this is going to sound perhaps a little bit self-aggrandizing, I guess might be the best word. I've often thought about this. If I were involved in a castaway situation, hmm? what would I do? Not just the survival element, but the, the living element of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've 
had so many points in my life where I wanted to say things like, oh, I want to write a book. Oh, I want to, you know, if I ended up in prison, like, like it doesn't even need to be like a, a, like a castaway situation. If I ended up in prison for 20 years for something, like what would I do to, to keep my mind busy and, and keep my sanity intact? And I would have, you know, whether it be a book or the best D and D campaign I've ever, ever thought about planning. Like, I think I could uh-huh. pull myself into those sort of creative endeavors enough that Oh, whether it was, whether it was supplementing, like if it was me and my family, mm-hmm. you know, that'd be one challenge, you know, keep my mind busy, but I, I still have that, that social contact and stuff. But if it was just me by myself, even, I think I could, I could keep myself going, you know, and I think we've had this conversation before about doing like manual labor jobs and stuff. So between jobs, like after, after my, my call center education and development shit kind of fell apart buyouts mergers layoffs bullshit uh but before going back to school i i went back to doing some uh auto systems uh organization that does um well all sorts of things here locally but i was working in a, a plastic molding press making parts for for headlights and, and headlight assemblies so literally in a press you know several hundred degree heat just pulling hot plastic out and, and pulling flashing off and, and, and filing and sticking things up on racks for flow coding and stuff. And the biggest challenge with that experience was that I was just so fucking bored. Mm-hmm. You know, and you got these lifers around you. You're surrounded by people that, like, they've been doing this for 20 years and they're going to do it till they'll retire. And my initial experience with that was, how the fuck are you, you know, not like shooting yourself like every day. Yep. And like, I really appreciate people that, that have the ability to just, this is my job and I turn my brain off and I do it and then I go home and I'm happy and, you know, they can get by on what little conversation they're able to have with like-minded people talking about the weather or something at work or, you know, griping about the man or, or whatever it is. And I, I, it took me a while to figure out that I couldn't do that and what I needed to do it. And a lot of it was just living in my own world, you know, like yep. oh, I, could, I couldn't mental landscapes. Yeah. I couldn't turn my brain off like they do. So I had to to find other pursuits and, and this has been a challenge for me in life, you know, and I don't, again, it sounds like I'm a little bit full of myself and I'm not, cause it's not a positive thing. Um, you know, I'm not a physically fit dude and it's easy for people to look at me and say, well, dude, just go to the gym. And it's not that I haven't tried. And it's not the physical aspect of working out that's the problem. It's the keeping engaged up here problem. And I've struggled with it so much. And now I find that, I mean, I can do things like listen to podcasts and whatnot now, but I'm, I'm finding myself able to escape into my own mind a little bit more uh, compared to what I used to like back in the day. And I think that would apply to this sort of post-nuclear holocaust situation where I, I could happily spend 20 years in creative endeavors that may not ever bear fruit, but you know, the process keeps me relatively sane. Um, Robinson Crusoe and the Swiss family Robinson were two of my favorite books as a kid. And I've, I've, I've had the same thoughts about like, what, what, uh, like, what would I do in that situation? I, I definitely do. I enjoy my own company. I have no problem being alone. 
Um, but I think like the struggle for me in a situation where you have to, you have to survive is, I mean, I worry about my wife on a daily basis and to be frank, she doesn't need me to worry about her. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not the point. It's not that, oh my God, I need to take care of her. It's, it's not that she needs taken care of. It's that I need to do that. Like that's, that's how I, I feel about it. Yeah. And I, I have a feeling that I would give my heart myself a heart attack in like the first few days, just worrying <laughs> about, oh God, like what am I going to do to keep her safe? Yeah, I get that. And I have a feeling that she would be in exactly the same boat because she feels like it's funny. We've had this conversation where it's like, you know, you know, you don't need to like worry about me doing this stuff. And, and it's like, well, yeah, I know, but it doesn't stop me from worrying. Right. And it goes both ways. So, yep. Yeah, so that kind of thing. But yeah, if it was like, okay, I'm stranded on a desert island, it's like this it's fine. I could I could literally make a set of drums out of coconuts and just bang on them all day and I would be happy. All right, question number two for me, Em. Unconventional food pairings. Do you have any food pairings that are surprisingly delicious, but at first mention sound pretty gross or just plain weird? Yes. Yes, I do. I have a thing that I made called pork in purple sauce. And yep, yeah, and that's the reaction I get every time. And um, if you close your eyes, it's delicious. Um, but if you look at it, it just looks weird. So the, the way it came about is that I was making some pork tenderloin, which I had cut into medallions and I had fried and some like, you know, garlic and salt and then various whatever flavors. Um, and I made some egg noodles. And I fried up some apples and onions, which is an odd combination, but I've since learned is not one that is uncommon. Like apparently apples and onions get paired a lot and they're very good together. Um, but then I tried to sort of make a, a thickened sauce for it to go together. Kind of, kind of like a, like a, almost like a gravy, but not really a gravy. Um, and I wanted to put some wine in it, but I didn't have any white wine. So I put in red wine and the sauce turned purple. So I had like, Bed of noodles, apples and onions, pork on top, covered in purple sauce. And it looks, because it doesn't, it's not red, and it's not, it's it's purple, and it looks very, very weird. My wife can't eat it. She won't eat it. Just because it's purple. <laughs> it's, it's funny how much that matters to some people, to a lot of people. Yes, to many, many people. Visual, I mean, like there's, there's, food is not just your taste buds. You've got, Mm -hmm. you know, it has to smell good. It has to look good. It has to be presented well. It has to, you know, all of those things. It has to have a name that isn't disgusting. Like if you call it, you know, poopy snails on a a plate. It's gross. If you call it escargot, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Tanya's very much a texture person too. So like it, it, it has to feel right. Mouthfeel is important. Yes. I think you and I probably come from similar spots in this. So uh, I I don't I don't look at food pairings as like oh that that that's ridiculous together. Like we I we grew up super super poor. Like my family, you know, we lived in tents for a while. We lived in a, what was a converted milk truck turned motor home for a while. So the number of weird combinations of stuff we've slapped together and either called it dinner or just as a snack are pretty ridiculous. Like my sister and I used to snack on things like raw potatoes dipped in peanut butter and, and, you know, almost everything, you know, raw carrots dipped in peanut butter. Like it just, if it's what you had, it's, it's what you had because just eating the one by itself wasn't right. So I don't shy away from it. One of my go-to food pairings though, and I love this, it's kind of my comfort food 
that um, I, I can't make it home. Like Tony can't stand it, even just the idea of it. And I don't blame her. Like it's it's kind of gross when you think about it, but not really. One can of tuna, two cans of cheapy no-name cream of celery soup. Uh-huh. On whatever kind of noodles you got. Yep. A little bit of salt. Yep. I did there was a, a stint that I did uh going to the gym back when we were at stream. Um that I was trying really hard to cut my body fat. I ate a lot mm-hmm. of tuna in some really strange places. Yeah, I did that too. Like just can drain salt and pepper right in the tuna can with a fork kind yep. of thing. Yep. Yeah, you don't have to do a lot of prep. Uh, the other thing that I, I discovered that is a little bit weird is that I would, uh, and part of it was just I was lazy and I never made my lunch, is I would bring a potato to work and then I would just sort of like poke holes in it get it a little bit wet, wrap it in paper towel, microwave it, cut it in half, cover it in relish. Which, if you're in the United States, you probably haven't experienced relish. It's basically um, sweet pickled chutney. They it's actually they an don't Indian have the relish food. in the states. Uh, there's there. I think in the northern states they do. There are some. I mean, hey, if if you're in the states and you're listening, just leave a comment in the wherever you're at, and we'll. Send us an email. Let us know if you have relish. But I've I, heard that I've I honestly, talked to like, people. I don't put relish on a lot of stuff, but I honestly didn't know that that was like not a just it's normal a, thing like ketchup. No, it's a specific Canadian food, as far as I know. It actually, it actually started off as gherkin chutney um, in India, I think, or in I shouldn't say in India. I don't think it was India. I think it was sort of like the the uh, expat Indians who lived in. Britain and invented all of the Indian foods that we know as Indian food that aren't actually Indian. They're from Britain. Hmm. I don't know. If you know more about it, let us know. I, I did not know that. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. Uh, last question from Ian. Have you ever participated or ran a D&D session uh, slash game where the player or the DM took the story out to left field quickly as in the gameplay was going well uh was well structured and then uh, took an odd turn for better or for worse that was completely random or out there um every single uh, D yeah, session yeah, i've ever run that's basically yeah. D. yeah yeah i mean i've never i've never actually i remember when i first started out as a dnd I, I as a dm sorry i i sort of would lay everything out and I would prepare all kinds of stuff. And I, I had this person and this character and this thing, and this is how they're going together. And when you get here, this is what's going to happen. And when you're done with that, you're going to solve that and you're going to go here. And, and then like 30 seconds in, it's like, well, I'm, I'm completely off the map here. I don't know what I'm doing. So, you know, now when I'm preparing stuff, I prepare set pieces and I don't put them anywhere. It's like, this is going to happen at some point because I need something for my players to do. It's like okay, that went over there. That's you know, and it, and yeah. that's that's a tough challenge because yes, you you need to prepare set pieces, but you also want to, you know, avoid the feeling that like you're giving them the illusion of choice, yes. where you know all paths lead to this set piece or something like that. Um, they need it to is, change based yeah. on what the players have done up to this point. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that that that's essentially my sort of approach to to campaign games. I mean, one shots are more on the rails and linear and stuff. But um, one of my big regrets in life, uh, speaking of things going out into to left field, is not getting a chance to explore our plan to create the Church of Meepo. And yes, and so this is this is an Ian thing. Uh, so for context. Uh, we had our group that we were playing uh, games that Towson ran. And after a year or two of doing that, Ian came on as a fifth player and joined us for, I think, almost a year before uh, things kind of petered out and uh, brought in a new character. You know, it was all part of the same extended session, but we had an opportunity to to create new characters in it. And I was the only one that kept my old character and, uh, he brought a, a character in uh, that had a, a religious slant. And early on, we've told this story probably eight times already, but we were doing, um, uh, what is that that module? Um, hidden hidden Temple, blah, blah, blah. Oh, um, you cut out there for a second. Um, the It started off as... Oh, from the tavern with the well in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, anyways, it's part of the the newer. Um, uh, shit, what is that? That whole whole thing called the, the that reuses a bunch of the old modules. Anyway, it's a D and D package thing. Uh, Meepo is a character, uh, a kobold that you know. We ended up cutting him in half in that game, and it's kind of come up as an inside. <laughs> inside joke for our games and and he decided to take that experience and um we were looking to break into a a, a city and i'm not sure what your intentions were like you'd set up this sort of red priest kind of huh? whole vibe thing going and and rather than try and get into the city and probably end up immediately dead i'm pretty sure ian drove the bus on this but the intention was Dude. we were gonna start a religion we were going to set up an operation just outside the city and start, uh, like a tent start revival. preaching. Yeah, like yep. like we were going to do this whole evangelical kind of thing to draw them out of the city so that we could do shit. And and the the focal point of this whole thing was this Meepo character. <laughs> and we didn't get an opportunity for things to go off the rails there, but they would have. And it's one of my oh. great D and D regrets is that we just. If we'd have managed to to get about four or five more sessions in uh, before things got bogged down there, it would have been fantastic. Yeah, that whole thing was basically sort of the Red Priests were were loosely based on the Red Wizards of Thay. Yeah. Uh, You know, it was supposed to evoke those same sort of thoughts, but it was a little bit different. So it was basically the the society was run by these, these Red Priests and they were... There was a I forget what I called the guy, but it was based on based on sort of the Western idea of what um, sort of um, Arabian's not the right word, but uh, like what the Persian sort of political system would have been like. Mm-hmm. And there was you know like the the Shah or whatever was in charge, but the red priests were definitely you know driving uh, driving all of that. And it was it was all very loose in my head because I didn't know where you guys were going to go with it. So whatever you did there was going to going to you know sort out what what actually yeah. happened. For some context, it was um, 
we started off just doing a bog standard Curse of Strahd campaign, and then afterwards Talson wanted to turn it into kind of a hub adventure. So this meant a couple of things. I think you were hoping that more people would jump in and do some DMing, but also yes. it kind of turned into this almost quantum leap style thing where we we were characters that had like av- avatars almost, you know. Mm-hmm. So we would get shot into this world inside the bodies of of you know, random characters. It gave us the opportunity to either experiment with different builds or whatever, even different systems. Mm-hmm. And uh one of the adventures we went on was the one that went on the the temple of whatever the hell it was called again. Uh Tales from the Awning Portal is the name of the module. That's has the name of the module. Um, but also like, you know, we ran into this one, it was almost like a little Western setting for, for a brief moment, then got pulled back. And then where this game left off that we were doing this church of Meepo thing was like, we'd landed on in sort of a, like a stepped pyramid in the middle of the desert kind of thing in an oasis. We were just getting ready to sort of branch off in different directions. And we'd caught wind of what was going on in this sort of mid city and that these red priests were responsible for a lot of bad things happening and um we just never never got to go anywhere really with it before things bogged down you know there was job changes and and that was around the time that you were getting ready to move out of the old house sell the old house and move into the apartment and you know summer busyness anyway and um we we took a hiatus that lasted until the point where i ended up running games instead of you and i I didn't pick up your story, but uh no. And that's probably for the best. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of story to pick up. Although I really did enjoy I forget what Tanya's character name was in that one. Uh Godric. Godric. I really enjoyed Godric. Godric was was the quintessential fish out of water. And yeah, it was it perfect. Was, it was really good. She um it would have been interesting to see how God, Godric developed because he was almost a one-shotty style character. Almost. You know, uh, Tanya really struggled. Her Like, playing games with Telson, like, that was her first D&D experience. And she fell in love with her first character, and he he didn't exactly make it. And uh, she oh, had a hard time dealing with that. Oh. You know? Yeah, and... I think that's fairly common for, for a lot of people to fall in love with her first D&D character and have a hard time oh. letting go. So she played a couple of characters, one through the end of Curse of Strahd and another going into this hub thing that just didn't... She wasn't into it. You could tell she wasn't happy that she wasn't playing Dulcimer. Yeah. And uh, we started doing some one-shots, and the first character she came up with that everybody fell in love with. And, and it, you know, this is kudos to my wife she creates these characters the first one was barb who was barb the barbarian just so funny yes so you know i mean she, barb was a one-shot character i'm not sure that she would have had the, the shelf life i think here's the funny thing is that yes barb was very definitely that sort of tropey one-shot character but i think barb had legs i think i think if she had kept playing barb barb had like the joke was deep enough yeah to to keep going and develop into something else yeah i mean the the immediate thing that i kind of think of circling back to our earlier discussions is the drax the destroyer character from guardians like there's there's not a lot of similarities in the character but no. like the character could have followed a similar sort of path if it had been 
part of a campaign character, but I think Godric, going back to that character, was sort of the evolution of that. Like, here's Barb with legs. You know, yes. the silly is dialed down just a little bit so that it doesn't cross any lines into being like, oh, this was really, really funny for three sessions. And now, okay, dial it back, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, but Godric was the perfect balance of like, still has all of that just ridiculous charm, like yes. just complete fish out of water, obscene charm. But actually there's a character there too that could could have some growth and and would always be the foil for everybody uh-huh. else in the party. You know, that was another campaign where a lot of us were playing silly-ish, or not silly-ish, uh, serious-ish characters, kind of like what happened yep. when you guys, uh, when I picked up the game and took over, where you got three characters that are straight-ish. Um, yeah. In different ways. Uh, and then you had Tanya just giving it her all with with this perfect yep. kind of... Chewing the scenery. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. what it was like. She's she's amazing at that. Uh, she needs to get back into playing a game on the regular, I think, because she is really good at it. Yeah. When she, she finds something that she's invested in and happy with, um, trouble is when she's not happy with it, like, it, you can tell. You know, the, yeah. the, the shade experience or the sorry experience just were not, were not great. But when she finds someone she loves, she loves them. I mean, that's the thing about new players sometimes too, though, is like when she was playing Sora, you could very much see it was, I want to try something different. I want to explore and see what it is. And it just was like, you could tell, not not sort of in the first session, but in the first few sessions that it's like, this this isn't quite the right fit. Yeah. And, and you know, it wasn't even that the character was wrong, is that it wasn't, it was not Dulcimer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's that was i think that was really the problem yeah. and i felt i felt so i like i i felt so torn about like do i like what do i do here and i mean to to let everybody you know listening at home know it was like dulcimer didn't go away like dulcimer didn't die dulcimer became the next big bad yeah um and i i was really looking forward to seeing how that turned out and Dulcimer is a lesson for everybody that plays D&D. So you know the meme that's going around, dude, at the whiteboard? You got a graph. You know, the x-axis is like, fuck around. The the y-axis find is out. fuck out. Uh, find out, yeah. Find out, yes. Dulcimer found out. Yeah, so, you know, Dulcimer was the, the shit disturber, the, the person that just never saw eye to eye with anybody in the group, and it was really good. Like, she played it amazingly well. It was fun super antagonistic with me and my character which turned into this sort of like is this marriage counseling or what's going on here yeah and for those of you that have played curse of strahd we went in and did the amber temple shit which has all of these sort of like ancient sarcophagi that sort of house the 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 immortal souls of all of these like dark gods and entities and stuff and like when you touch them shit happens you know you you can get their gifts or their boons but it really is a corruption of you and the, and the character involved and where all of us are like don't touch anything dulcimer is just like oh what's that you know hey look over there touch 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 i want this and you know oh do i'm i'm oily and hairy now you know i'm turning into eye growing in my shoulder yeah yeah so you know after the 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 third time that happened, I think it was, uh, Talson sort of made the decisions DM as well. 
Dulcimer isn't dying here. I'm not killing your character, but I'm taking your character away from you because it's what's right for the story. Uh It's the natural sort of consequences for the actions that you as a player have chosen. And, you know, I think it was sensitive for her as a a player. I I probably put words into her mouth where she, she probably felt like, well, she was being led in that direction, you know? So, you know, it felt like she was kind of trapped in this, this situation that led to her character taken away. And I'm not saying either or is right, but where maybe a more experienced D&D player would be like, okay, that didn't go exactly how I wanted, but I've I've got 17 new characters already sitting there just waiting for an excuse to play them. And I'm going to gonna grab another one. Um, she just, she hadn't, there was no getting over Dulcimer while playing the next couple of characters. And it, it, it you could tell. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a harsh lesson every time. Um, it's, yeah, like it's, it's really, I remember, like, I mean, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons now for God, almost 30 years, more than 30 years. And I still remember my first character name was Karak, K-A-R-R-A-K, because of course, hard K's are, are hundred percent fantasy, Fantasy as hell. Yep. Uh, and I, there was something that went a little bit wonky with the dice rolls. I mean, I had like two 18s and two 16s, which was, it was, he was ridiculously OP. Hmm. Um, he was both. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, except charisma was my dump stat. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I, I still remember, like I came back, when I when I moved up here, I, I uh, started playing D&D with some, some friends that I've, you know, been playing with. Some of them I've been playing with forever, and some of them were, yeah, like new friends that I had met. And like I had a paladin who was a halfling and I was like lawful good. And I was like, oh, oh, are you really sure we should be doing that? Right. And that that kind of trope. And after playing for three or four months, I got killed by Cone of Cold. And it still it still hit me with that. Oh, but I really liked this character. And I'm like, how do I react? Like, I have to behave like an adult. Like, I can't flip the table over and storm out, but I really (laughs) want to. Right. And I'm like, and the, I mean, the DM basically like, it's it, like, this is what happens. Right. And that's that group that I play with that is very much um, about like, what are the rules? And it's a tactical game. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, they also bring role playing to it. Like, I don't want to suggest that they don't, they do. They're just more focused on like, this is yeah. the, like, it's a tactical game. And like, I was bringing a lot of role playing into it. And I was really attached to this character and how much of a foil it was to the rest of the party. And it, it just like it kicked the bottom out of my world, man. I'm like, oh man! Like 30 years later, like uh, thousands of characters. And for thousands those of, of you characters. that don't that don't play D and D or tabletop games, like the relationship between a player and a character is almost like the relationship between like you and your own child, or you and this this identity of yourself that you have you know yeah you 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 nurture you pour your thing. heart you and pour soul your heart into it. into it yeah you do it and it, it is really a you know unless it's a meme character like you know for a one yeah. shot or something like something that is designed for a campaign that you like you go in like i'm gonna play this thing for the next six years yeah and and you yeah. take it seriously and it's important that like I know a lot of a lot of DMs will 
this turned into table talk. We we skipped table talk, but it turned into it. A lot of DMs <laughs> will will have almost antagonistic approaches to their players, where it's like, well, you know, my part of the game that I get to play is I get to try and kill you all. That's not the right approach, but you you still need to have that sense of risk. There have to be consequences, you know, otherwise, the, there's no point. Right. So, you know, I look at a situation like the Dulcimer situation where it's like, okay, ignoring what's exactly happening in character, what there is here is there's a character that's testing the limits. And as a DM, you have to be like, there are consequences so that everybody else at the table, including that player with a different character, understands that, you know, your life is on the line. Your character's life is on the line. Yep. And um I've 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 had some up and down. I'm not gonna get into specifics, but I've had some up and downs with with some of my players that um have have run into some some tension where things didn't go a certain way, where it's like they wanted to do something and and the rest of the party wanted to do something different. And often it has been in those situations where like we're dealing with, with high tension moments, like, you know, an escape, a daring escape, the skin of our, our, our teeth, you know, we're barely getting out alive kind of thing where some of my characters have, have wanted to like do something that interrupted that tension for their character, which would have, have lessened that experience and taken all of that other, emotional sort of stuff around that that particular moment away from the other characters and we've been upset that we haven't you know literally hit the pause button and and uh uh done this other thing which really didn't make a lot of sense in that particular moment and i've I've had to explain to that uh those players that no it wasn't that they you know the other people at the table weren't listening to you it wasn't that i sdm weren't listening to you it's that we were in the middle of a thing and it was the right thing at the right time and, and, and interrupting that to do something else just wouldn't have fit. You know, we can come back to whatever that is. But, you know. I think it's important context too, for anyone listening who's played through the curse of Strahd that we played all the way through the curse of Strahd with only two character deaths. Like that's, that's a very, technically that's a very, only one. Oh, that's true too. Yeah, one was early. Only one. Squigs was early. Yeah. Oh, and that was funny because it was completely random. Like it was, it was oh. in the middle of a combat situation. We were at the, um, oh. uh, what's the name of the the druid little thing? Oh, um, I forget. Just the... not too far away from the the winery, anyway. Yeah. And um, there's this whole sort of scene with this like wicker man style thing and and, and whatnot. And Dulcimer combat was and, happening. Uh, Dulcimer and Squig, and Squig charging just ran up the hill in. on the elk, and or, or the horse or whatever. It's no was. problem. Uh, the rest of us are behind on foot, so we couldn't even get there and help. They get engaged in combat, and Squigs goes down. Dulcimer ends up going down too afterwards. But you had Strahd because there was a character sort of connection there with what you did with Strahd's story, kind of keeping Dulcimer alive carrying him out but it came down to death saves for squigs and he rolled a one he rolled a one because it was it was one round away from you 
could get out of this. And he rolled yep. a one. Yeah, like, you know, the rest of us were, I think at that point in time, we'd closed the gap to the point where we were about 40 feet away, just oh. in time to see him roll the one. It was funny. So I, I'll have to post it up or something. But uh, I did this whole uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto style kind of wasted thing when it happened, where I took the video because I was recording those sessions. He rolled the number one and uh, just everybody's reaction was perfect because it was just like one, one, one. Let's like, oh, no. And then everybody went quiet. And then you went, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I really wanted because I mean it was his first time playing too, right? And I'm like, oh man, you know. And, and it's one of those things too where we were playing in, in like uh, roll twenty at the time, right? So it was automated. It was a yeah. it was a visible roll, so you couldn't fudge it. You couldn't be like, oh, well, it says you're dead, but actually you're not. Like it was, it was. You got to respect the roll, and and the roll happened for a reason. And yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the Plo character that he brought in afterwards was pretty cool, though. Oh, he was great. But that was also part of, like, the dark downturn of Dulcimer because that they had this little buddy cop team thing happening, and one yeah. of the buddies died. Yeah. And Dulcimer yeah. never got over it. <laughs> yeah. There's an awful lot of interesting story stuff that just happened in that campaign that was, uh, like, like I almost had nothing to do with. I was just, I was just there sort of going, you know, here's a road and... You guys are walking down it. That's D and D. That is. So going back to your question, Ian, you know, a time when when things took an odd turn, like if D and D is happening right, almost every session. Oh, at least, at least once. Yep. You know, if you're if you're on rails and things are going in the expected direction, then you're probably doing it wrong. It's more fun, definitely, as soon as the rails break and you're off into the field doing whatever. Yep. It's it's harder. It's definitely harder as a DM when that happens. But if you if you can handle it, it's awesome. Well, Ian, thanks for sending your questions in. Uh, anybody else, if you want to send your questions in, reach out to us by email, podbag at nerdingundertheinfluence.com. Say howdy. We'd be happy to hear from you. You want to wrap things up? Sure, let's do that. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Anybody want to pin it? It's time to wrap up the show as we always do with parting gifts. Telson, do you have any nuggets of wisdom, any delicious ah. goodies that you would like to leave our listeners with? Um, yeah. Um, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week that I'd really like to do something that was like good news stuff. So there's a show that I've been watching on TV and I might've mentioned it last week. I can't remember. I think you did. Yeah. I'm old. And my, my memory is bad, but we've been watching the show called Car SOS. And it's, I mean, I, I basically cry at the end of every show because it's, they, they find somebody who has a car that's basically moldering away in the garage and their, their family or whatever writes in and says, you know, hey, my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa or whatever has this classic car that they got. They wanted to do a rest restoration on it, but then, you know, they had like, you know, 14 heart attacks and they can't do it anymore. Can you come and fix it? And they come and fix it. And it's awesome. So that's my my good news thing for the day. I would also like to say that I've forgotten about this game a bunch of times, but I played Just Cause 4. Have you ever played any of the Just Cause no. games? I, own I mean, one of them, I think. But yeah, the story is eh. It's, you know, you know, Rambo dude goes and like overthrows a third world country somewhere. 
Um, but the, the controls are fantastic. You have like a little jetpacky thing, like you do a, a, a wingsuit thing. So you can jump off a cliff into your, your wingsuit and then you have a, a parachute that you can deploy and retract, which is really weird. Right. And then you have like this grappling hook thing that comes out of your, your wrist. So you can like sort of wingsuit down to something, deploy your parachute, shoot your grappling hook, pull yourself up the cliff, pull your parachute again and get up higher. And it's just, it's fun to, to swing around. It makes you feel a little bit like Spider-Man. So it's cool. You should try it. I have a question for you, Towson. Shoot. When or how did meatloaf become that gross thing that your grandma made that nobody liked to eat? I've never I, understood this. Uh, my my parting gift to y'all is meatloaf, the food, not the, the musician slash personality or whatever. I, I don't know. I, it became a trope. It's a little bit like fruitcake, right? Like, I don't know how you feel about fruitcake. I love fruitcake. Um, I'm, I'm fine with the fruitcake that isn't too... Um, I'm not even sure what it is in it, whether it's the currants or something. There's one thing in a lot of fruit cakes yeah. that I'm not a huge fan of, but it doesn't ruin fruit cake for me in general. Yeah. Well, uh, fruit cake is always better when you put more rum in it. Mm -hmm. um, meatloaf, I think it was because uh, it was in that same sort of uh, misogynist comedic tradition of you know let me tell you how bad my wife is and how much i hate being married right which i mean i bought into for a really long time until somebody pointed out to me how stupid it was and i'm like oh oh yeah you know it's just yeah. like those those jokes aren't funny and, and i think meatloaf falls in the same category because i make meatloaf and i love it it's great yeah. i have i have a, i have a tip for you about meatloaf um if you mix in some renee's caesar salad dressing into the hamburger um, and you put partially cooked, thinly sliced potatoes underneath, they will absorb some of the flavor and the fat and they almost fly, fry up. So you end up with like a meatloaf on top of fried, uh, fried potatoes. Yeah. Uh, we don't do that now. I know meatloaf is almost a category of food rather than a specific food. And my general advice would be don't overthink it. Like I, I imagine the, the grandma's meatloaf stuff, uh, like that's people overthinking like weird ingredients and random shit in it keep it simple um the way i do it generally and the way my wife did it she she this is her sort of approach more than mine and it is my favorite food in the whole world you have your meat egg you have breadcrumb or, or whatever you're using as a filler ketchup in the meat yes. mixed up instead of adding something else to sweeten it ketchup in the meat yep. a little bit of mustard in the meat so we're talking burger toppings here for the most part garlic hamburger salt and pepper cook it like that put something around it like we'll usually do little roast baby potatoes or better yet lima beans another thing that a lot of people don't like but you just you do them simply and butter you, make, you cook them to the point where they're like overcooked and nice and crispy with your meatloaf oh, dude <laughs> You need it to come sounds visit so, so simple. Can... It is the the like if I were on death row and and had to choose my last meal, my wife's meatloaf, or even my own meatloaf, because it is literally just a a reasonable facsimile of my wife's meatloaf, would be the the 
top of my list every time. I could eat it five days a week. You you need to come visit so we can cook at each other. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that sounds delicious. I I would say that a little bit of ketchup on top and you finish it under the broiler so that the ketchup almost mm-hmm. burns. We put it on top, perfect. but you mix it in with the meat too because it it just it, it, it adds just a little bit of sweetness without adding a lot of sugar. And the combination of the mm-hmm. little bit of acid with the, the ketchup and the egg and whatever you're using as a binder uh, really pulls it all together and you end up with this, this juicy... Just it's it's wonderful. If you if you shy away from meatloaf because it sounds like that grandma's food that you don't eat, go like just make yourself a simple meatloaf, man. It is just delicious. And the simplest way to make it is make yourself a hamburger patty, form it into a loaf, put it in a pan. That's meatloaf. Well, that was a good show. Thank you all for listening. Hey, it's been good talking to you too, man. We'll have yeah, to do it again indeed. sometime. We should we should probably do this like on a weekly basis or something. All right. Uh, we'll try that. We'll see how far it goes. Uh-huh.